What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rico's Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I'm joined today by a very interesting, very special guest, uh, Mr. Dave Hall of the uh, Navy SEALs, to come and share a uh, really, really cool stories, uh, some really cool stories with us, share his experiences, and obviously talk about some of the watches that he wore along the way and that he wears now and enjoys. So, Dave, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I'm really excited to chat with you, and I'm really looking forward to this episode. Thanks for inviting me. Nice yeah. to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. What do you have on the wrist today? Just before we get into some of the questions, uh, it's the typical. It's a Zen U two. That's a wonderful, wonderful piece. Very cool. I, I don't know. It might even be the first Zen that's uh, been on a wrist check uh, on the right. show. So very, very interesting. What uh, can you tell me about the U two versus like the U one, for example? Like, what was sort of the designation for that piece, or what made it special? I suppose. I think the biggest difference is the U two has as a hand for a second time zone. Mm. Uh, so that really appealed to me and i wasn't actually out shopping for uh zins or u1s or twos it's one of those ones that uh fate uh brought the watch into my life and you know somebody so a friend of a friend another seal had a friend that got way uh into debt buying cool stuff like watches and then passed away and left his uh widow with a lot of debt and so my friend was trying to liquidate as much uh stuff to try to recoup this he had and you know, so he showed up with some a bag of cool watches and was like do any of these uh stand out to you and uh there were two of them we couldn't walk away from and uh and you two was one of them wow that's outstanding no it's a really really cool piece and you know one that i think just really embodies a lot of like the utilitarian tool watch vibes that i think uh you know I've certainly seen just through your Instagram page that you really appreciate. I know I certainly appreciate my own collection. So really, really cool piece. Um, before we kind of get more into the watches per se, obviously I've got a million questions I want to ask you about being a Navy SEAL. And I'm sure a lot of the audience wants to hear as well too. Can you kind of talk to me a little bit about where it all sort of started for you? Like what made you want to be a Navy SEAL and, and how did that process of even getting to or into the Navy and into Bud's class even begin for you? Okay. Um, I'll try to condense it as much as possible. I think it's a pretty typical story, though. I, I came from a, a semi-broken home. You know, uh, my my parents divorced when I was about a year old. And I think when I was about seven years old, my, my, I was about seven when my mother uh, remarried and remarried somebody that wasn't a very nice person. And um, when you grow up in that type of environment, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a one or a zero. You either become somebody that... Uh, it's kind of broken the rest of their life and just kind of gets through, but uh, sort of knuckles under whenever aggression comes towards you or you go the other way. And, and so oddly I went the other way and, and it's, I've saw, I met a lot of other guys in teams like this, but uh, cause everybody else in my family were, were uh, females, you know, my, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother. So I didn't really have these strong male positive personalities around me. Um, so I decided that I wanted to be somebody that, um, you know, that uh, kept people from being oppressed, I guess. And at a really early age, I got interested in the military. I was constantly playing army, wearing wearing uniforms and uh, play guns and all that sort of stuff. And uh, or my even my teens, I started asking people, what's the toughest you know, thing to do in the military? And um, I hadn't heard about so Nobody knew about SEALs back in the late 70s, early 80s. And then I, I joined a Sea Cadet program. I actually joined the League Cadet program prior to that. You, you guys have those in Canada, by the way. Um, so it's basically a Navy Junior ROTC program. And I lived close to Great Lakes Naval Base. So 
Well, I'd heard word of mouth that there was this program for kids that were interested in the military, very centered on the Navy. And I got involved as a lead cadet. And I think when you become over 13 or around 14 or so, you become a sea cadet, which is the older version, but um, just basically doing drill hall stuff and basic military, you know, drills and things. But I loved it. I thought it was awesome. And I, through, through happenstance, I started hearing about you know, whispers about SEAL team which I thought the Navy, you know, because I wasn't really super impressed with the Navy. I just liked military stuff. I thought I might be a Marine or, you know, Green Beret or something like that. But everybody started whispering, no, no, the Navy has this thing that's tougher than that. And there's fewer of them. There's only a handful. And that uh, the term elite always seemed to be connected with it. And uh, at a very early age, I was like, hey, I think I want to find out about this. Then I met one. I actually met a handful of them. And I was so damn impressed. Um and what really got me, I didn't, it wasn't like I saw them doing fire and movement or anything. They were parachuting, but the adjectives that they used when they spoke to each other were unlike anything that I'd ever uh, encountered in normal life. You know, a guy would say to another guy, hey, when you get done you know, playing hack and sack or whatever, we need to over here and pack up some parachutes. And the response was, a, you know, like a, you know, outstanding. Yep, we'll get it done. And it, and it was also positive adjectives normal people didn't talk like that and they meant it they were serious and uh it was uh it's kind of it was infectious to me as a young kid so one of the the perks of being a uh, sea cadet was i was afforded an opportunity one night at great lakes to actually take the the screening test the real screening test to give boot camp recruits if you want to go to buds and i think i was uh 13 when i took it 13 or 14 13 going on 14 and I passed it. I like legit passed it. I passed the swim, I passed the pull-ups. The, the pull-ups were the hardest thing for me at the time. Smoked the push-ups. And uh, and that gave me an opportunity. I said, hey, do you want to go down? Do you want to go out to one of the SEAL teams for two weeks in the summer for some summer training? And it was all on my own dime. Nobody paid for it. My family paid for it. But I went. And um, of course, a kid from the Midwest, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to California, you know. Everybody in the Midwest wants to go to California. At least you did back then. And um, and they said, no, they don't. They, all that one's full. You're going to go to Little Creek, Virginia. And I was like, that didn't even sound good. It sounded like a swamp in Virginia. That sounds horrible. And they're like, no, 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 you'll like it. And I went down there and I was hooked. Uh, the SEALs that I met down there, um, if I name their names, are just were some of the most legendary guys. There were still a lot of guys left in uh, 
deactivated. So I drilled with the 12th Special Forces Group, and that was crazy because half of those guys were all dudes that spent the entire 60s in Vietnam. They were all former 5th Group dudes, and I learned a lot from those guys. Um, but it was mainly a drinking club. They didn't like actual life in the Chicago suburbs, and they drilled two or three times a, a month just to hang around each other and reminisce about, you know, Vietnam. And uh, I drilled them for a year at the boot camp at Fort Knox between my junior and senior year of high school. And uh, lo and behold, I became the, the, uh, got the, the cadet or not cadet, but the uh, recruit uh, in charge of my company. And then I competed with all the other recruits. I ended up being the head recruit. So here I was, was like 17 years old, uh, graduated as the top person in uh, Fort Knox for that summer. And then they said, hey, you know, that you could position this to an appointment to West Point or whatever. So I played around with that, looked at going to a, a military junior college at uh, Marion um, Military Institute in Alabama. And um, what ended up happening is all of the terrorist events of 1985 started winding up so there was one in july that affected affected me later on there was, it made an impact so that was the killing of navy diver robert steedham um he and his brother and, and i are really good friends we met in the teams that's how his brother got in the team so uh all of these events in 85 from july to the tariffs events uh from you know Achilles laurel hijacking the combined rome and vienna uh airport uh shootings by the pflp in uh November, was November, December of uh, 85, I started catching glimpses of SEALs that I had met when I was at Little Creek in the background of the news. And um, just little glimpses. It wasn't like they were hard interviews. They just people on the scene reporting. And I was like, oh, that's the guy that took me shooting. Oh, that's the guy that took me on the O course. And then I started thinking, what am I doing? And, and also when I was in the 12th group and no disrespect to the 12th group, they treated me fantastic. But there were a lot of people back then. Uh, Special Forces was trying to recruit and draw people in um, and boost their ranks. And so they had this thing where you could do 80% of the qualification course via uh, correspondence course. For every two-month phase, you basically did all these correspondence courses. Then you came and did two weeks. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. You know? <laughs> Even as a teenager, it didn't make sense to me. And uh, then they were having everybody wear the Green Beret, whether you were qualified or not. And the final, final nail in the coffin was that um, I had to listen every weekend to these young people that had gone to the Q course, failed the Q course, and come back. But they still drilled there wearing a Green Beret. And all they could talk about was the SEALs they came across when they were at Airborne School and how incredible, you know, the phys feats of physical stamina that these guys had or, you know, they could outrun everybody or just stories and i was like man i don't want to be the in a unit talking about another unit it's better i want to be in that unit so so i approached the uh i approached the headquarters staff and i said hey i i don't hate it here i don't dis disrespect anybody but i'd really like to give this a try and they were like yeah you want to do a lateral transfer to active duty navy and i said i, I would like they said nobody's ever done that before and uh yeah you want to swing for the fences yeah we'll support you so they did they let me go down see a navy recruiter and i got on delayed uh you know uh, enlistment with the navy and finished my senior year of high school and i took one month off and um worked out like crazy like i had been all winter anyway and next thing you know i was in navy boot camp the following year 
in 86. So I went from Army boot camp in 85 to Navy boot camp in 86. And uh, there, Gunners made a, a school and then to Buds. That's that's so much to do while you're still, you know, a young person. You hadn't even become, you hadn't even become an adult yet, right? Like, that's that's no. crazy. But, I mean, imagine, like, how much of an impact did you find? Um, you know, you talked about at the very beginning, like, you, you came mm-hmm. from a, a, a harder background and, a, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. a broken home, as you described it and whatnot. Like, how did you find um, at a younger age, like 13, 14, getting into, like, that cadet program and then all these other subsequent programs that you went through? How much of an impact did that? make on you in sort of the person you became the man you became to then go forward with something like becoming a navy seal like was that really sort of that rock and that foundation that moral compass and 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 that ethics that you were able to learn in those scenarios that prepared you for that or yeah how what kind of that's like, a great it's a great question and and i, I would say every bit yes uh to all of it um i would have never known about a uh, seal team at that at that stage in life, in the in the early to mid '80s, nobody knew what seals were, unless you were one, you know, or you were a Vietnam veteran that came across. Uh, the rank and file, there was no publicity. It wasn't like it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first part. I probably would have never heard about them, and it wouldn't have intrigued me. It wouldn't have hooked me. Like, oh, wow, what's this? And then when I met those guys, also was through that. I met a few of them, and so the in person interaction really appealed to me. uh there were there were you know group of of uh, male role models that were so incredibly fit so incredibly positive to everybody that were around them and treated each other well and i mean they even teasing each other you were like you could tell there was a, mm-hmm. you could tell there was a bond between those guys that you're like yeah i'm an outsider here they didn't treat you like an outsider but uh they treated everybody around them in the public great but there was just something more to it. It was, I mean, that essence of being a team, I was like, I thought being on a football team in high school was being a team. And once you saw these guys, I was like, no, that's what being a team is. And so I think it drove me in that direction. And I was all, it also gave me a lot of um, uh, direction to push any, any, any kind of frustration that I might have in my personal life went into physical fitness. And I was just, and uh, this is good. These stats are going to sound crazy, but like when I was in sixth grade, I would get up in the morning at 6 a.m. Since so not invoking a bunch of sixes, but I just remember it this way. So I would get up at 6 a.m. and run six miles because I, I was just driven. Like I've got to run. I've got to be fit. I've got to do this. And so once I got into the SEAL thing, then I had to add swimming to the whole thing. It became about how far can I swim? How fast can I swim? And, um, I had a blistering uh, workout schedule I for for a good two or three years during that whole process. Mm, that's incredible. And so, like, when it came to, I guess, your Bud's experience, because that's kind of where we got up to in the story so far, like, what, if you can, before we even get into, like, what Bud's was actually like, like, what do they look for in an applicant to Bud's or someone that gets accepted to Bud's? And then, you know, obviously, like one of the things that you, you talk about a lot or you hear about a lot now with buds is the washout rate as well, too. Right. So they look for so many people or they look yeah. for a certain type of person, but then even those people don't necessarily make it through to the end. So then what really does it take to be the person that completes a buds course? Well, that's another great question. And, and um, I just happened to be sitting at an interesting slice in time where. So when I checked into BUDS, it was very early 1987, and SOCOM had really just absorbed, you know, SOCOM had formed 
And so the army who was in charge of SOCOM while they wanted to know what do we inherit with these seals what's up with their program and, and when the army looks at a program that has an 85 consistent 85 percent washout weight um and sometimes higher than that uh and, and that and that and the navy accepted that that's fine and the army was like that's waste wasteful we had something different so they took a really interesting uh on it and they said listen we're going to start screening we're going to do additional testing to try to put our finger on why so many people don't make it through your program and the navy was cool with that and i happened to be one of those people that i was just randomly selected so i can actually answer the question better than most uh, but i think all seals would tell you that i can't look at a person uh, before they go to buds and tell you whether they're going to make it I, I think any SEAL that says they can do that um, is kidding themselves. You don't know until you get there, mm -hmm. you're going to be that guy. And sometimes you don't know even still until, until you just realize I'm just not going to give them the satisfaction of making me quit. I'll quit at the end. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll quit. And that's really what they're trying to develop. But um, anyway, so they tested us physically and they tested us mentally. And uh, they did it. They took a... Uh, they took a mental battery on us when you accepted your orders for Bud. There was a mental screening test that was done, and uh, not every single guy. They had they randomly selected guys from a, you know, three or four classes, and I just had. And then they would do these physical tests as you were going through Buds. It ruined one of your Saturdays every other week by making you go down to uh, the uni University of California in San Diego, and they had all these really impressive tests you know max bench press max endurance test i don't know if you've ever heard of a vo2 max test mm -hmm. but they're really dangerous they they rarely do them anymore because they yeah. literally run you until you pass out mm -hmm. and, uh, you know you can kill people doing that and they did that with us and um the results of what they found um shocked them they weren't very happy with the results mm -hmm. so they and they were doing the same sort of thing with Army Special Forces and um, Force Recon. And what they found is, and they and they were measuring our diets and and our um, everything. And what they found is that across the board, uh, they were actually still they were doing it with active duty SEALs too. It wasn't just the trainees; it was the the guys who were in the teams. And the same thing with Recon, the same thing with Green Beret. So what they found out was, I wish that they would publish the results of this. Um, pretty interesting found out that our diet was by far the worst we basically had a diet of basically beer okay. and we had the worst um like structure for physical fitness basically you know jungle boots long pants deep sand and a rope climb and pull-up bars and and dip bars and um and then <laughs> they were also comparing the same test with olympic athletes the cool part so then they go so we had the worst diet about out of everybody in the test olympic athletes of course and uh the worst the army special forces were the had the best most nutritious diet and were the most overweight right, by the test uh called and we were really lean our body fat was like nothing and then they uh then the thing that really shocked them and then all of us scored as Olympic athletes, like I was up in the uh, stratosphere, like highest, like most fit athlete in the in the Olympics as a biathlon 
person, but we had much way more upper body strength, and we were all up in that. So what was funny is uh, they looked at the psych testing, and that's this is what bothered them. They went, "Oh shit!" So every one of us that came into Buds um, were patriotic, you know, mom, God, and apple pie, you know, career oriented. I'm, I love the Navy. I'm going to stay in the Navy for 20 years. And they noticed that those of us that continued on and didn't quit, something changed and we became more um, aggressive, more ag aggravated and less, I'm going to stay for 20 years. Like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to or not. And, um, and less like, I'm not doing this for my country as much anymore. Not saying we abandoned it, but the test results can be subtle changes. And they basically said that we just became hard-headed, aggressive, um, not willing to quit. Whereas the people that held really tight to the values that they entered with, like, uh, you know, I believe in this and this, you know, mom, God, apple pie, wave the flag. If they didn't give up on that a little bit, just become ornery, they across the board seem to be the ones. And, um, yeah, so that was the difference. And the, the thing is, um, I think that it is one of the most fascinating crucibles. I don't care what anybody, there's all been all these TV shows, you know, done on it now. And everybody that writes a book has to talk about their personal blood experience. But the, if you think about the, the genesis of why it buds spread the way it did in World War II, and it hasn't really been molested very much. A little tweaks here and there to keep up with some of the modern times. The standards are so high. And even with all the books written and all the documentaries, if you were a Bud student and you showed up on day one, by the end of the week, you'd be like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. All of us did that. Like, I thought this was going to be about training to be a SEAL. And really all it's about is trying to. That's it. It's all mm -hmm. I want. And and there there's very little. If it almost you could almost say there's not any positive reinforcement other than it pays to be a winner because it really does. But if you are the fastest runner, you get a little bit of the fastest boat, boat crew, a little bit of a break. You're the best swim pair on a, on a back or dive or navigation dive. You get a little bit of a break and not much of a break, but a break nonetheless. And um, the negative reinforcement is constant. So if you do this, there will be something bad will happen. If you fall back in a run, something really bad will happen. It, you know, if you don't uh, set your rig up right, something really horrible will happen. Mm. And um, not a lot of people, I think, you know, I, 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 I don't weep for men of just this generation, but I think that they've been very few of them are set up for success that way. Whereas if you come from like my background, I didn't expect an easy day every day because most mm. days weren't fantastic. So it wasn't tough to adapt to negative reinforcement. Um, whereas I think kids that have always had a trophy where they, you know, they showed up and they, they get the trophy as somebody that put out really hard. Um, I think that's got to be a whole transition mentally for them. I don't know that they can make it. Well, and so uh, you might ask, and I'll, I'll just get ahead of you a little bit, but they, they have more classes per year now than they've had in a long time and the throughput isn't and that's one of the dirtier secrets that the the navy and but there's an awful lot of expense that's paid to not just promote hey we're we're seals you should be one of us and advertise 
and then screen. The people that show up to go to Bud's now are more physically fit than any of us were when we showed up. And I was really going at it um, because they put them through this advanced physical fitness thing. And they're more they're more prepared outwardly than we ever were. And yet just as many or more are quitting as ever have actually more quitting because more classes are being. So they're not picking up annually as many seals as, as they want all the money and time and effort. That they do. do you think, and, and do, think do, do you think that putting people through and doing so much preparation ahead of time and anticipation of going to buds is actually doing them a disservice? Like, do you think the best group or the best of the best that you would pull out of a group, like when you were going through buds or in buds classes of, of yesteryear were that, you know, the, the guys that showed up and really got to challenge themselves without that preparation were the ones where you got to see like their tough, their mental toughness. And you got to see these guys really actually put themselves through the ringer and sort of that, sh that initial shock of like, Holy shit, this isn't what I thought it was going to be was actually in some way what impacted the level of success of previous buds classes. Or do you think it's just that t generation of, of, of men that, you know, higher testosterone, less screen time, all the other things that factor into, you know, making guys like a softer these days are mm -hmm. impacting, you know, had, had a bigger impact back then. Do you think it was the diets of, of beer and whiskey and steak that did it for them? Or what do you think it was? Well, I just, um, I think, I think you, I could answer that with a salad and not a word salad, but it's not, I don't think it's any one thing. I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of ingredients that go into that. Um, and it'd be, tough to put super accurate um, value markers on which one is stronger than the other, but it's definitely different. I, I will say this though, I, and I, I don't think any of my peers would ever dis disagree with this. Yeah, it, it came to our awareness after once you become a SEAL, you're wearing a Trident and you're doing the job and you look back on what the Bud's experience was like and you see your, your guys that made it with you and the old guys that are much older than you and then you see guys that come up behind you I think the commonality is this, and and like that throughput, like part of the Navy tries, they only squeeze X amount of people through, no matter how many classes they run. And so I almost think it's generational. We all kind of do. I think mm -hmm. that in every generation, if there's X many males born in the United States, you know, in this year, or say this year, the Navy can take this many trainees, there's only so many in this country that have what they're looking for to be sealed. And I think the Navy's been doing it wrong since after I went through those guys that are going to be sealed. You don't need to go look for them. They're looking for mm -hmm. seal team. Those guys that can be seals are looking for that challenge. That kind of gets back to me when I first heard whispers of, you know, what a seal was and did, you know, I couldn't imagine the Navy had something that was super tougher than force recon or tougher than, Braves, whatever. Until I met a bunch, then I went, "Oh God, they really do." And they were so small. It was like, "I, I what do I got to do to get accepted to that?" And um, I think that's what the Navy's doing wrong. And I think that that's what our society's doing wrong is we're trying to give it away. And it, it's something that has to be fought for. And the people that want to fight for it are looking for that chance. I think you bring up an interesting point, right? Is it, and I think that that's actually probably exactly it. Is like the people, the right people that are going to do the job the right way are, are going to seek out 
that challenge, like you said, yeah. right? Whereas now I think maybe that the SEALs have been so sensationalized and promoted so much that now there's a lot of people that are, are drawn to that more for like the prestige or the yeah. title than they are in, in the challenge. And then when they get there and they're, you know, going through some of the challenges you have to go through in, in, in buds, they mm -hmm. realize that, you know, if you're doing it for the prestige and not for the challenge, you know, you suddenly don't want to be treated that way or have to go through that kind of stuff. Maybe it's not worth it anymore. Right. For, for some, for some of those people. Right. So that's a very interesting perspective. And I think one that probably actually is right on the money for what some of the challenges are. Um, can you talk a little bit then again about what buds class consists of? Right. I mean, we've all seen the, the boat carry and the log carry and the running in the sand and, you know, they're hosing you down at night while you're doing pushups and, and things mm -hmm. like that. And is that really consistently, does that consistently represent the day to day or what, like, I know you yeah. talked a little bit about some of these challenges that, um, or some of the environment, which is very interesting in itself from a training perspective, because obviously like there's the, the, the negative reinforcement, if you as an individual fail to perform, but then there's mm -hmm. also the positive reinforcement of, of, uh, performing well in a team or even as an individual, but in a team as well, which I think is very speaks yeah. volumes to the sort of environment you go to after buds class when you're actually assigned to a team. Yeah, something you just said uh, uh, tickled me to say. I'll, I'll say this before I answer that. One of the things that you just said, um, it lose uh, a thought that was an observation. So even when I went through, and I think it's even more true now, the people that um, were like standout all-stars, whether whatever it was they did in high school, in college, they were uh, given platitudes and praise of, you know, you're the greatest football player, you're, you're whatever, you're the greatest swimmer. Um, tended to be some of the first people to quit mm. that didn't make it through the program. And um, I don't think that's an accident. I think that, um, that having people that are, are that don't expect to be the winner all the time mm -hmm. uh, is what you want. Um, so when I went through, it's, it was a slightly different than it is now. Buds is uh, there's three phases of buds. There's your, your uh, basic conditioning phase. And back then that was represented by a green helmet liner. And then, when I went through the second phase was land warfare and that's been changed to the third phase since I graduated, uh, for, for various reasons. But, um, so I went, uh, basic conditioning, green helmet, land warfare, red helmet, and then dive phase, blue helmet. And then you graduated. And then from there you went to, uh, army jump school, basic you know, jump school, data plan jump, jump school. And then from there you went to your team. And uh, so when I checked in, I think we had normally they give people orders so that they show up with within about two weeks of the start of their starting first phase. So some people get there a little bit early. So theirs looks like three weeks and some people get there a little bit late. So there's one week, but there's just a basic um, conditioning and it's not really conditioning because I mean, how do you how do you get used to that? You know, it's just, it's more the, I would say cultural conditioning, what's expected, you know, your room's going to be clean, you, you know, your uniform's got to be like this, you're going to get, and you have three physical fitness evolutions a day for, for days. And so most guys, I don't care how hard you worked out, did not work out for three hours a day. And that can be longer than that as well. So it depends on if it's a, you know, it could be a swim, a swim, the old course and, and uh, a conditioning run. Or, or time drawn or something. And yeah, it smokes people. So um, so what I think that, well, let's come back to that. For, 
And it, we'll talk about uh, the notion of getting women through buds without compromising buds. And I can explain why that's not happening. But mm-hmm. anyways, you graduate uh, uh, around your fourth week or third or fourth week is hell week, which basically begins on a Sunday night, afternoon or evening and lasts either until sometime on Friday or as long as sat- the following Saturday. And you literally, like in our case, we literally only had three hours of sleep interspersed throughout that week. Um, they do that on purpose to show you that your body, to show your mind that every time your body screams at you, you're killing me. And you say, then we're going to die. And you don't die. Your body and your mind, your mind adapts to the body's pain. You're never comfortable, but it's not the physical discomfort that you need to get used to. It's the mental discomfort. Mm-hmm. Buds, by and large, 98% of buds is mental. That's what the cold water is about. That's what the sleep deprivation about. And, it, you know, if you want to soften somebody up, just don't let them sleep for two days and see how soft they get without any physical evolution involved. Now, let them sit on a couch for two days and then start asking them, you know, detailed questions. Now, now add constant physical evolutions, old pain, injury. Um, the one thing they do is they feed you. I mean, you're not down because you're blowing through so many cal- calories. They actually feed you four times a day. And it's the one that's the one uh, break that you get. You get four of them, basically, to and to eat. And not all of them are warm and dry. Some of them are in the chat. Most of them are in the chow hall and you look forward to that. Um, but some of them are sitting, you know, chest deep in water in a demo pit, you know, while they're setting off flashbangs around you or quarter pound blocks of TNT. And you're trying to eat one of those box lunches and keep the sand from getting in your mouth, creating a seal with a Ziploc bag on your, you know, Oreo cookies or something. Um, but I think that the, the point is that at the end of that, I don't think there was one of us when, week was, was relieved that ultimately wasn't sh- both shocked and amazed at what we were capable of and less from the physical sense but more from the mental aspect. Hmm. what was that like sen- what was that sense of relief like or was it a sense of relief that you felt at the very end of it when you when you oh, completed hell week yeah yeah and that's you get one that was one of several massive like letting the air out of the balloon because hell week is easier to do once mm-hmm. and it would be to do partially and then have to do it again. Um, the guys that have done that, I'm like, my hat's off to you, but I think they would all agree too that like, yeah, I would have just rather sucked it up, you know, unless they had some sort of medical failure where they really couldn't go forward. If, if it was a mental failure, I don't think there's one of them that wouldn't agree now in hindsight that they wish they would have just sucked it up and got it through. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, I felt the same way when I did the underwater breath hold thing. And when I passed my, you know, um, my uh, dive, not certification, but the way they goon you up underwater. Um, to, and, and same thing with ground proofing. These are things that you don't want to do multiple times. You just mm-hmm. want to suck it up, do it right the first time and put it behind you and move on. Um, and I think that's, they probably heard other people talk about it. It's very true. Uh, seals, uh, you learn to survive for little short periods of time. So I, I didn't worry about the whole, when I went through, it was 26 weeks long. On week two, I wasn't counting 24 more weeks. I was counting how many hours to chow. You know, we're doing this thing and then it's going to be chow. 
and I'm going to have a triple decker peanut butter, butter jelly sandwich, you know, and hydrate, and then we'll be on to the next thing. And I'll worry about surviving to dinner. And um, my wife will laugh. She's sitting in the room. She'll laugh. But at SEALs, I think habitually or as a, as a lifestyle, very few of us can see much further than two weeks ahead of us, at least when you're in the teens. Um because you're only thinking about the next evolution. You're not thinking too much about the last one. So it's always the bags that are uh, need to be packed by the front door, the gear that needs to get cleaned, go in it. And, you know, when people try to make plans like, hey, six months from now, we want to take a vacation. You can't even comprehend it. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm looking at my training schedule two weeks deep. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it kind of stays with you. Mm -hmm. It's a, if you're married to a SEAL, I think it's a highly aggravating. Um, but if you're living a lifestyle where you're being thrown speed balls uh, constantly, it's uh, it, it's it's a survival. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite part of Bud's class? Hmm. I, I well, I liked any all the marksmanship stuff. I did really well. I really liked that. I liked. Um, turns out I was one of the faster swimmers, so I wasn't super worried about the swims. They were just old and long, and you're stressed about making the time. Um, the demolition stuff is pretty cool. Um, that's when you start realizing shooting an M16 is one thing, but being, you know, taught how to take everything from a M112 block of, you know, C4 explosives to massive cratering charge and how to prime and tap those things in. And then you're actually doing them and, and you're doing it breath holding underwater, blowing stuff up. That's, that was about the time that I realized, hey, this is man camp. This is this is what man camp is like because I don't care where, what other program is going on. They're not teaching a, shoot, I was 20 years old. I wasn't even old enough to legally drink a beer, but they were teaching me, well, 19 when I started, and they're teaching me that stuff. I'm like, yeah, this is right. And, and so you, you talked about it being man camp in a way and sort of alluded to something previously that you said we'd come back to. Like, what was the important part of, you know, what, why is it important, I guess, to maintain the integrity of Bud's class when you see other branches of the military now starting to soften up some of their requirements, some of the training, some of the expectations to accommodate equity policies or whatever you want to call them, right? Yeah. Like, and, and, you know. I, I see the I see the reason why I or I see my own reason why I don't think they should do that. But I want to kind of hear your own opinions as someone who experienced it about why maybe this wouldn't be the best environment for maybe a female to go through, or um, why you think or and also why it's so important to continue to maintain a consistent experience for seals as they come through buds and for it to as you say earlier stay unmolested from sort of woke policies. I guess you could call them. Yeah. So SEALs were born out of necessity in World War II. Uh, the UDT and CDUs, which led to the formation of UDTs, uh, they went through the same training. And that train, and fortunately, in the post-war, uh, through the Korean and, and the Vietnam conflicts, the, the basis of the short-fuse training, very compressed and high, high stress, uh, was, was maintained. And the reason why is because it was capability basis. They needed guys that could go do something that was above and beyond what normal people in the military could do. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's always been all volunteer. Um, that's why you can leave at any time. And that's that's the other thing. The bell bell exists figuratively. You don't necessarily ring it if you quit being a SEAL on active duty. But any day that you want to get up and quit, no, 
you know, guys that are there deserve somebody that's going to give 100% of himself. So, <clears throat> so back to the, the necessity. The necessity was to have someone that brought a high level of um, themselves, both um, in their spirit as a, as a, you know, giving everything of their heart to it and everything that they have physically. And if they're a little short on the physical, that they're willing to do what's necessary to bring the physical up to standard required and to put the, your buddy and the team before yourself. And I'm not saying that a woman can't bring that heart. I'm not saying that a woman doesn't have a place in special operations. We've been in special operations years but what I am saying is that physically, um, I've seen some super fit women, but you cannot put that male body through the grinder as it exists right now and not have it break mm -hmm. unless you lower the standards. And if you lower the standards, then why even call it SEAL team? Why even award a trident to say we're not going to have SEALs anymore? Because when you say, hey, there's four SEALs in X country doing this job. There's okay. Then we know what we have. We have a capability there. Um, if you go, hey, we have four people we're calling seals. One of them went, made it through, and she's you know female. And you look back, and go, well, they lowered the standards. Then what is the new capability? Because it's less than what it is right now. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something. Uh, I mean, if they don't care, they don't need some you know that group of hard guys that can do that then okay fine expand the seal say they're done and we're going to call them something other than that and we're lowering the standards we want more of them we want women to be there and it's a big social experiment and we're all going to be such better people for that okay well military have the guts to do that but uh i think it's also a liability thing for the navy as well i mean aside from what you said which i completely agree with it's like women have lower bone density they have lower muscle mass they are hormonally very different putting a female body through something like hell week could sterilize them could kill them could cause a lot of problems with them physically after, you know no sleep for a week on end like if i've heard of stories of other special forces training where they've put females through that sort of thing and the, the long-term health effects have been very negative for the female body as well you know I've, people have brought those points up and i'm not going to say that those aren't valid points i'm not a uh i'm not a physiologist but i i was a career seal and i did go through the process so i'm going to break it down i think more it's i think it's much simpler to explain and the people that are in wearing tridents that are trying to con, you know convince themselves and everybody else that what i'm about to say isn't a truth are really not telling the truth so i'll put it to you this way so i told you that uh so i had the screen for buds when i went into navy boot camp and passed the test Mm. And uh, of all the other different things you got to pass, you know, the physical part I had to pass to their standard. And uh, and they don't mess around. Like, you miss a pull-up, you're not going. So then I went to A school. And then they were like, okay, your orders are up to come in. But you have to pass, you have to go down and go get screened again because they, they're not going to give you your orders. But you can't pass the screening test. So that was the second time I passed while on active duty. And then in that two-week period of time when you first checked into BUDS, before you class up, guess what they do? They take everybody to the, the track and they run you through and everybody's got to do it perfectly. And they run you through the screening test again. And here's what I've seen. When I went and when I did it the first time in boot camp, I smoked it mm -hmm. because I'd been out on the outside working out 
on my own time for that month before I joined the Navy, I, I laid down some blazing numbers. And then when I did it uh, before I accepted my orders, when I graduated A school, I was even better because all I'd been doing when I wasn't in A school was, was hitting the pool, hitting the gym and running. And I started, you know, I was 18 at that time, 18, yeah, I was 18. And I'd started to fill out more and put on more bulk. So the upper body stuff, I was just, I could do push-ups until you got tired of watching me do push-ups perfectly. And I went to Bud's and I was there for about a week, week and a half, doing those three physical evolutions a day. And they said on the second week or something, they're like, hey, we're all going to go do the screening test. And I thought, ha ha, I'll show these guys how it's done. And my numbers were, I didn't fail, obviously, but I was shocked that I was like, God dang, I, I didn't have the wind that I normally had running. I didn't have, uh, I probably did a few less pull-ups, you know, everything was less. And uh, so my answer to the whole thing with the women is, when you show up to buds, like in a perfect world, when you can train the way you want to train and you're not exhausted, I could lay down crazy good numbers for buds. Mm -hmm. But after you've been tested and your body's been exhausted, I, I still had enough in, re in reservoir to convincingly, you know, pass. But I think what's happening with women is we've got women that are developing themselves you know, and, and unfortunately, I mean, I think a lot of them have been sold a lot. Yeah, if you, if you just pass this physically, you can do this. We're going to let you do this. And they, put, they come there with all the heart. Well, that's not a rare thing. Every single person, if there's a class of 100 people, do you know how many people in that class know in their hearts they're going to be Navy SEALs? Every one of them. But 85 of them, on average, will willingly themselves go ring that bell. Mm -hmm. So what changed? something changed right mm -hmm. so these women come with the same heart it's not any different than anybody else that goes to buds and makes it through or quits i think they all really believe they want to be seals but what they're not bringing and they can't possibly bring is a body that's prepared to perform after it's been ground down a bit mm -hmm. and that's that's week two mm -hmm. so what's going to happen you know most of us harden up at some point in second phase or something, you get this tenacity, your tendons get stronger. You guys do get injured. I got injured, but I'm just saying overall, if you see pictures of a buds class or you talk to anybody that ever had to go to airborne school with a group of SEALs that just graduated buds in their class, and they'll be like, they'll either think it's the funniest thing that ever happened or the most horrible thing because nobody cares. Army only lets guys do, you know, it makes you do 10 push ups at a time. And you're looking at a whole class of people that can do. Over a hundred, easy to drop mm -hmm. of a hat. So, um, I think that's the difference. Is that God bless them. There is a place for women in special operations, absolutely. But if you want to call them seals and they really want to earn it, then they would have to lower the standards. And at that point, I don't think they should call it seals. Mm -hmm. No, completely fair. I totally agree. What was it like for you emotionally, from best you can recall, to hear that bell rung for the first time? Uh, when someone quit, hear it wrong? Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, so, <laughs> it's sort of like the first time you get shot at in combat. It's it's like, the, wow, this shit's real. You know, this is not a joke. They're not playing around. Everything I've heard about, wow. And you hear, you know, you hear the bell ring. Sometimes you're not in the compound because the bell is in the compound. Sometimes you're not in the compound. And that's often people don't like to quit in front of everybody. So, 
they'll they'll give you a break. You know, you got a break to go, whatever, change into your shorts for this evolution, or a break, you got a you know break to go to the bathroom. And as you're doing the break, you hear ring, ring, ring from inside the compound. And then you're like, who was it? Then you're looking around and you realize who's missing. And you're like, wow. One of the cool things about it is nobody lingers there. Mm. I quit. He's got a sight out of mine. Like he will not spend another night in the barrack, mm. which I think is, I think that's also hardening you up for how war is. Mm. You know, when, uh, when someone's gone, they're gone. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Did you wear a watch during butts? No, you're not allowed. So as a trainee, you're not allowed to wear a watch until like when we would do uh, dives in dive phase, you could have, you had a watch on your attack board and uh, like this G-Shock. Nice. Okay. That's cool. On the attack board. So if you needed to know your time for something like that, or um, sometimes limited, limited times when we were doing demolition in second phase, it allow you to put your, they tell you, you can wear your watch because then you had to learn to calculate time fuse burn. That. Um, but after that, no, no watch. The only person consistently in, that was a student that could wear the watch was the uh, class leader. And that was so that he could make sure that we got to where we were supposed to be on time. Interesting. Okay. So after you completed BUDS and mm -hmm. you, then you went to jump school and then you got assigned to a team. So can you talk about the team you went to and what that environment was like. And did you feel yeah. that the training you did up to that point really prepared you to go to that team? Or is that a whole other culture shock when you arrived at your team? Uh, elements of elements of both. So um, you, you kind of get your wish list. You get, you get to wish for three teams in order of precedence. And um, I was very fortunate. I wanted to go to team two. So having done that secret at thing two years in a row, I was endeared to all of a sudden I forgot about the West coast and I was like, no, I want, I want to be one of these guys. And um, so that's where I really wanted to go. And only three of us got orders to go to, uh, to the East coast. And uh, we all went to two, everybody else went to the West coast. So I was very, very fortunate. Um, when I first checked into, when I first walked across the quarter deck of the command, whew, I was like, Holy shit. I am in the lion's den. Cause you got to realize you just had like three weeks at airborne school where any one of us was, you know, uh, apex predator, you know, we're at the time. Nobody could mess with us because we just, they just physically could not take the time really punish us. Like we deserve to be punished for all the shenanigans. we did. And um, so you're pretty cocky. Then you step into the quarterback of the team and you see these fit, very seasoned seals walking through and the way they look at you it's probably like your first day in prison mm. like oh crap something's gonna happen and then there are rumors that you know you're you're gonna get beat up by the command as a as a knock you down a notch mm -hmm. and back in those days they did you know they hazed you and it was probably good it's probably important that uh you realize okay i'm not i am definitely not the big man on this campus i better just learn to shut up and fit in and so um, in a short period of time back then, they each team was responsible for training its guys to really be operator. Buds was just to give you the some basic marksmanship, some base, you know, the demo was really good. Uh, the basic diving concepts, you know, how to use a rebreather, you know, that in 
a safety inherent for all of those things uh, as a baseline. But it's really about getting people. Mm. They can deliver the right guy to the team to teach that guy to be an operator. Mm. When you get went to SEAL tactical training, well, in the there was maybe three or four weeks in the time I checked in and the time SCT started. I remember all of us young guys kind of whining to each other about, I wish they'd treat us like adults around here because everybody is kind of treating you like you're wet behind the ears. Well, then it's the be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. And they start teaching you the real, this is how we really dive. This is how we really do demo. This is how we really shoot. How we really jump out of planes. And uh, you're and you're responsible for this. Like, you will be responsible for this. And if you don't make the grade, you don't get a trident. You know, they didn't give you your trident for six months after of STT. So you were in a probationary period. So you really realize that like, hey, being late, there's a consequence. Um, you know, losing something as a consequence. And um, and you realize that everybody that was teaching you this stuff knew far and away more than you knew. So there was no argument. You they were not on a level playing field with your instructor. You weren't on a level playing field with the guys that changed in the locker room next to you. And so you, uh, you learn, you learn to shut up and learn, but the locker, the, the checking into a command is like unbelievable. Even as a brand new guy, you're, you know, you get a check-in sheet, you got to go into every department, you know, mm-hmm. they mess with you because you're the new guy. Um, when you finally get assigned your locker, you get a locker in this locker room. And I mean, I would say it's probably on par with the, uh, somebody's a rookie's first day in the NFL getting assigned a, a locker on his team because you are in in a room of giants and you have a cage or later on they became cages. You have a space that's only your own. No one's going to mess with that. Your gear goes in there. You organize your gear. And I remember and just the smell of that locker room, you know, it's always kind of dingy because we're wet all the time. So it's always kind of drying. And I remember thinking, wow, I have arrived. When I was, I'm like, I'm allowed to be in here because outsiders don't go into the cage area. You have to you have to have a trident to go in there. And the fact that I was allowed to not only go in there, but that was my place where my things I was issued were at. And then you get like 16 green, huge bags of gear, which I don't care what era you're from. So when I was, you know, checking in in 88, that was some high speed gear checking in today it's still high speed gear and uh and you're like holy shit you're trying to add up how much everything cost and it's uh yeah it's fantastic Hmm. and so what period of time like how long were you in the teams for i I graduated in 1988 and uh i got out for a year in 1999 and came back in in 2000 and then i uh then I served another seven years. I retired in the fall of uh, 2007. So obviously there was a large period of time uh, where you got to see a lot of development and maybe change in the way that your training was and the t- and sort of the application of, of special forces and Navy SEALs specifically. Like how did you see things change? And even the guys that, you know, you worked with that started out in that Vietnam era, what was some of the commentary you heard from them about how things changed? over time you know one of the one one of the things specifically that comes to mind is you know i've heard of uh like the war in afghanistan and the war in iraq being referred to as like a special forces war there was a there was a heavy application of special forces during those during those engagements compared to maybe to previously so yeah. like in that era of the late 80s early 90s what kind of 
I guess, what are you training for as a Navy SEAL on a day-to-day basis? What sort of engagements? Is it fighting Russians? Is it, you know, is, is it going to the desert? Is it jungle warfare? Like what was really the heavy bit of training that you focused on? And then how did that change over time? Um, a great question. And it's funny because I never saw myself um, as special. I still don't. But I think the time frame that I served, it uh, it was uh, Ben Lowry when he did the uh, the article for Watches of Espionage. Mm-hmm. He was really the outside. It's it, I think it takes an outsider to go, God dang, you know, you served during the Cold War and bridged through the, you know, the war on terror and everything that came after. And um and I never saw myself that way. I just saw myself mm-hmm. the job. But now that I look back at it, it is, yeah, it changed quite a lot. But when I first came in, we were still fighting the Cold War. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a that was a big thing. Most of our mission sets that we were planning for like when i was at two had to do with uh europe northern and, and uh, central europe so obviously focused towards the soviet threat and um and their satellite country where they were exuding their their um it's funny also because good question asked me today because earlier today uh i had a youtube channel on it's actually a pretty good channel it's a the uh, what is it? Small arms solutions or something like that. And uh, the guy Chris that's on there is a knowledgeable guy, particularly about things that have happened in small arms development as it pertains to uh, factories reacting to requirements. Um, but I was saying to my wife, I'm like, hey, I'm not annoyed by this, but I would love to sit down with that guy and fill in the gaps because he's trying to explain, you know, why this happened from a SEAL's point of view. And, and I said, he's missed who oh, told him that, but that's not how it went. So, I can give you a perfect example is um, we went, you know, in the 80s and early 90s until the Cold Cold War formally ended. Um, we were working a lot with our, our NATO allies uh, on being prepared to fight another war, protracted war in Europe. Um, there were also the little brush fire things in Central and South America that were, were popping up that our friends that were at the board seemed to be eyeball deep in. And then there was the, um, I think we all realized, as, we, as soon as I checked into the command, one of the things they don't teach about BUDS is urban warfare. And as soon as we got into the, the teams, by the late 80s, we were like, hey, we're going to be fighting cities. And uh, I mean, this was before, we didn't have mobility. We didn't have our own vehicles. Um, our vehicles were both being driven by other people for that. So we didn't have Humvees, we didn't have Jeeps, we didn't have, you know, if we were going somewhere on land, we were legging it. And um, and we started training for urban stuff, either getting there in and out by helicopter or walking in and out after we've been dropped off by a boat or a helicopter. And I think the um, the shot across the bow that, hey, we need to, we really, really need to do this better this was, uh, was animation. A couple of my friends were killed on that, young guys. Um, and it really made everybody wake up and go, I don't think we really know how to do this like we think we know how to do. Uh, I think we're doing it wrong. So we started really adapting to try to uh, train ourselves, do more urban work and be more skilled in urban work. And we started to realize 16-man platoon gets eaten up really quick. In our, uh, you get task saturated, but 16 men can't cover every angle and really looking at that 
And uh, by the time, so the thing that was on the YouTube channel today that I thought was interesting, and I was just explaining it to my wife, we got the M4s in 1996. During that time frame, when we were doing land warfare, we we uh, we did a lot of our bounding moves if we took a contact by what we call volume of fire. So there would be one element, uh, however many guns could be in a fight, and one element would set a base of fire, and the other element would get up and move while that base of fire you know, would put the enemy's head down. And then that next group dropped down, and they would lay down a base of fire. But it didn't matter if we were moving left or right or forward or back. That was essentially the premise. So we relied heavily on, uh, you know, a couple of automatic belt-fed automatic weapons per maneuvering element, and um, and we were doing a lot of automatic fire with our carbine. And um, anyway, go fast forward. Here we go, two thousand one, boom, nine eleven. I was in one of the first group of guys days after nine eleven to deploy, and by the time we all came back, those of us from the uh, JSOC team. And those of us that were on the regular teams that came back in the spring of 2002, pretty much all of us were like, yeah, we can't do this by volume. There's got to be a better way. And we had all sort of started to figure it out. Um, and I can tell you where that came from. It came from we were being taught by Vietnam guys. So if you're patrolling in a jungle, whether there's a thin trail or you're kind of bushwhacking it, if you drop down and take a contact in the in the all of a sudden you contacted the enemy and you drop down to get small so you don't suck up a bullet. You can't see the guy to your right, guy to your left. So you know what you don't do? You don't get up and move because that's how you get shot by your own people. So those guys learned, <clears throat> uh, you know, to lay down a pretty serious wall of lead and dominate by firepower then move in on the enemy and encircle them and, and then clean up what's next or break the engagement. So we were applying that tactic to pretty much all these different, not jungle, but we were applying it to woodland, where it's maybe a little more open. You could possibly see if it's hard wood. Uh, and worse, when we got to Afghanistan, to desert, right? So you only have to live to get to a rock. And then you can see generally the guy on one side or the other. We started to realize dumping all those uh, rounds down rangers just making noise. The only thing that really mattered was if the bullet connected with that needed to be shot. And so we started to realize full auto fire is stupid, generally. I mean, it's nice to have if you really, really need it, but we we sort of turned off the full auto switch that 2002, 2003, and started taking much more well-aimed, well-placed shots, communicating more. And we switched from what we call volume of fire tactics to IMT or individual movement techniques. So that on my own initiative, if I can see you and I can see the other guy on, on the right, I can communicate, hey, I'm moving. And I can move and leap, take a couple of well-aimed shots, hopefully do some damage with those shots, and then move. Because we also learned that if you take more than three shots from a fixed position, you're going to be getting shot. So because somebody saw, you know, you took those shots. So even if you move just by rolling a little bit, uh, one side or the other, that bullet's coming in because you took a couple of shots and somebody saw you. And I learned uh, I learned early on that a, a miss by an inch is the same as a miss by a mile. And I've been missed by an inch a lot uh, because of those IMT. So that was a change that uh, the way this guy, Chris, on the, on the YouTube channel I was looking at today, was trying to uh, correlate some of the damage that was done to the M4s, overuse or things like that. 
with uh, with our volume of fire stuff. But what I what he didn't understand because he was is that we stopped doing that volume of fire stuff by by two thousand and three. We were done with that, and I think in his mind he thought it lasted a lot longer, like maybe to. But um, yeah, that, that shifted on a dime, and then really starting to use night vision and starting to use um, electro optics, so red dot sights and things like that. So when I um, first time I actually used uh, red dot sights in a combat scenario was nineteen ninety four when we invaded Haiti. Um, but you know the Army Special Operations, the, the unit had been using them prior to that. Um, that was actually also the first time that we put a white light mounted on a on a you know m4 style weapon which then a uh called the nr727 predecessor it was a gap filler between a car 15 and the uh, m4 um we'd been using white lights on our mp5s but we hadn't really and then it, we started taking carbines as we started getting on bigger and bigger ships and and in urban environments where you're like hey as soon as you step outside of the room you got a guy with an ak 100 yards away or more and you can't outshoot that guy with your MP5. What are you going to do? So we started training to use the uh, the longer guns, the carbines. So yeah, I've seen all of it. I've seen all of the transition from iron sights and you know, hey, it's nighttime and we're we're getting in a contact. Let's make it day. Flares up. Shoot until we're tired of uh, it being night again. We stop putting flares up and then we would move. And then that transitioned into we shoot too much more and we should be moving more so we had those individual movement techniques scaled in and then we started bringing in the electro, electro optics to enhance our aiming ability at the same time we started we really started relying on lasers and we're just i think the teams are just now getting off uh i'll call it a laser crutch and it's only a crutch because it's a force enabler when you're fighting people that aren't technologically advanced like um if you were fighting a, a army that had night vision turning your laser on could be just um, but we were fighting cavemen, so they, they didn't even know we were in the same universe as them. And you'd be painting, you know, two or three guys would be painting some dude that you see on night vision with a laser dot. And he has no idea. He's got six dots on him. You know, he doesn't even know you're in the same environment as him. Um, those days are gone. So we're, we've moved past that. I think the teams now are transitioning. And you see that in these aftermarket things. Everybody thinks it's new. Hey, let's raise the electro optics so that you can use your night vision and, you know, you're not getting a T-12 anymore. You're just going to look through there. And I laugh because I'm like, well, that's exactly the same height as if you put the electro-optic on a carrying handle to begin with. But back in 96, when we accepted the M4, it was, we had to take those carrying handles off so we could put these doodads on. None of us were having to, you know, use our night vision to look through passively a dot site because we were just turning our lasers on. And, um, I think somebody should have raised their hand somewhere in the military and said, hey, what happens if we do this? Let's go get two opposing groups of us and fight each other, you know, with, with blanks or, or simulation for a second and see. And somebody would have said, yeah, every time you turn your laser on, I don't know where you're at. Hmm. The only way this works is if I can see my dot, but I can't see it with my nod because I can't get my head, you know, my head's crunched down there. So things come, have come a little bit full circle. Hmm. How did... 9-11 changed things for you in the, as a member of one of the SEAL teams. And then how did 9-11 change things culturally within the SEAL teams in, in your own, like 
how did it change you as an individual or how did it impact you as an individual? And then how did it change the culture within the SEAL teams now having this very real threat and engagement that has come, you know, there's this cooling off period after the end of the cold war, you know, you're still training in this period, but I don't suppose maybe there was a clear threat as there was, be as there was once 9-11 happened. I, I don't know. Is that correct? There Does that make sense? Yeah, there were all little little problem spots all over the world that, you know, and in the teams, it's a very competitive environment. Um, and you always wanted to be on the mission. So, you know, we would joke, I, we joke about it, but it actually was with more truth than, than joke that you didn't want to be somebody that somebody considered uh, weak or able to be taken if the word came down that like, hey, something's going on down in X place and there's going to be a contingency for being together to go deal with it. And, and, and if you didn't think your name was on that list, you're like, who's the weak guy that I think is in the group that might go, I'll just, you know, break his leg in the, in the hallway or something. It was so competitive. You know, you would have fought to be one of the X many people. Um, 9-11 changed everything because it was that be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. And, and we got it in spades and we found out a lot of things about ourselves. Um, we found out that we were a blind giant, that we had this immense capacity, capability of doing direct action uh, or special reconnaissance. But we didn't know where to look. We didn't have a we didn't have a uh, in very robust intel and definitely didn't have a robust human intelligence uh, resource to direct us to uh, the right war. And so we had to uh, we had to accept that and we had to develop that. Uh, that happened quickly. I mean, I think after when it was happening, I'm sure we all thought it couldn't happen fast enough. Um, but it happened and it completely changed the dynamics of how the team trained and how the team deployed. And uh, it added an awful lot of um, attachments that were necessary to get the job done um, to assist us both on the target and in the rear of being steered to the right door. And um, culturally, what happened is uh, people started dying, and uh, and they were all people that you had known for a decade more. And uh, and we we're very close. Like uh, when you're a SEAL, I, pff, you probably don't socialize with anybody but other SEALs and their their friends and wives. And so, you know, when you lose somebody that you've known for for maybe ten years or something, you've done platoons with them. You were in the same team. You know their family, you know their kids, you were there for, you know, weddings and anniversaries and stuff. Um, it becomes very perfect. And um, and then that just kept happening, happening and happening. And um and you start getting, like in my case, I mean, I'm not unusual. I think we all got to a point where we were like, Well, this is how we're gonna die. Matter of time that gonna be a fiery helicopter crash, or I'm gonna get shot up or blown up and and everyone just kind of accepted that they were going to die doing the job in some horrible way. And then the wives and girlfriends, you accepted, you accepted that. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's, imagine being around people that that's how you thought when, and you still went to work and trained your ass off and went on trips doing, you know, preparing to go on deployments and and your family and, and the closest people around you uh, have to accept that as well. You know? Do you think that made you a better warfighter? Uh, well, I think in my case, I mean, I, I, I guess everybody deals with it a little differently, but it, even before all of the, all that, 
um, I, uh, before I would go on deployment, I would, you know, kind of pre-dye myself in my head. Because, you know, we all have things that we, yeah, you want to check it out. We all have things that uh, you wish were better. Like if you said, hey, I'm, you're, somebody told you you only had a week to live, you, there's this list of stuff that's not finished, whether it's uh, relationships that need to be repaired or things that you haven't done that you want to do. And I had to come to terms every time. And I did. I, thought, I didn't want to be burdened by the thoughts of that when I was forward. So I would do this really intense uh, shooting train up for about two weeks before I went on every deployment. And I would kind of pre get used to the idea that, yeah, this relationship is never going to get fixed. If I die. But, you know, I wish it was better, but it ain't. And that's, I have to accept that. Um, yeah. So that you can leave it on the shore when you go get on the airplane or on the boat to go away. How do you find that that dynamic uh, crossed with things like operational burnout and stress, um, you know, guys don't like to talk about it, but things like PTSD, how did you find things yeah. like that accumulated over, over time? You know, uh, when I talk about the, the operational burnout, for example, like you yeah. hear these stories about guys that are hitting two, three targets a night going from place yep. to place, to place, to place. And, you know, there's that heavy reliance again on the seals or special forces to do that. And how did you find that, find that impacted you in that environment? Um, well, I found personally, so I used to tell brand new guys when they checked into the team and I would help them with their check-in procedure, I would, I would grab them up and go, Hey, show me your check-in sheet. I'm going to take you around and, you know, show you the ropes all the way up and including, all right, we'll take you out to our team bar so you can, you know, learn that part of the culture where we're at. But I would always preface it by saying, you don't know this. But when you walk through the door, you step on one of those people movers, like conveyor belt things that they, that they have at the airport. That thing is going like 360 miles an hour. There's wind in your hair and you just don't even realize it yet. And when you realize it, then you're going to realize just like in Buzz, it's easier to keep up than to catch up. Mm -hmm. And so the mo momentum and energy you're talking about is like, okay, we hit a target. Well, hey, we hit a target. We developed intelligence information. We can we end up darkness left. We can go hit another target. And you, you catapult on that. And it's like, okay, I did a deployment that meant maybe an 18-month workup and six months overseas. Sometimes some of those were shortened to three. But then you come back and you immediately go, and when's, what's the next thing going? Who needs another guy? And you you start to realize, well, in your mind, you think it's easier to keep the momentum going than it is to go and pop and try to get to that speed again. And um, so the burnout doesn't feel like a burnout feels like that um you know that story about you know how do you cook a, how do you boil a frog you know you mm -hmm. just bring it up and three at a time the frog never realizes the frog is boiling and then never jumps out of the pan and that's what uh pts tbi and uh you know burnout in the teams like me um and the thing is that here's what you do because you're so competitive you're going hey uh do i have a problem because I can't sleep at night because I'm having because I'm having to kill like a lot of vodka to turn my brain off to go to sleep at night, uh, or because I've, I've made all these coping mechanisms to make sure that I have all my badges and and car keys and everything ready to go to work at a moment's notice. I have to set up all these little uh, you know fail safe ways that if my brain can't remember stuff, I I know where to go to find all that stuff. You start looking at the people to your left and right like you do after a team run. Was I as fast as that guy or that guy? Yeah, I'm good. 
Uh, can I shoot as good as that guy? Yeah. Can I hit a target diving as good as that guy? Yeah. Better. Can I uh, jump out of a plane and hit the, you know, hit the X as good as this guy? Yeah. Okay, then I'm good. Problem is, is that you're measuring with a bent ruler because they're all messed up too. Mm. So you're comparing yourself to people that are just as messed up as you are and you don't see the differential. And I think that's been the problem in the teams and it vexes them to this day, particularly the leadership is because they can't, they can't understand. So they, the leadership is a little more distanced because they're not in that fight every day. Say that it's a term, but they're not going outside to watch. Senior leaders aren't going outside to watch. But what senior leaders will see is they'll see a guy who was a uh, sailor of the year come back and start acting really weird, doing really weird stuff, doing like stuff that maybe isn't socially acceptable or acceptable in the band, uh, or making decisions or things that have repercussions. And instead of recognizing it for what it is and saying, hey, we we're, we have bent this guy, we've put this guy in until they instead hold them to the norm. and. Generally, that's some sort of cruel disciplinary action. Um, a lot of times they revoke the guy's trident, and then um, which takes your identity away. It's mm -hmm. so hard to get that, and they just pluck it right off your chest like it didn't even matter. And uh, and then you know, a lot of times they try to give the guy the boost by pulling a security clearance and giving him a, a nasty discharge characterization. And, um, and honestly, I think that and the fact that guys witness that happening is is one of the uh, predominant reasons why the suicide rate is just off the off the chart. Hmm. You put everything into earning this identity as a seal, and the senior leadership can discard it like that, and you're worthless. Moving on. So, you know, I go back to what I told you before that I think there's only so many men in every generation that those men are going to come looking for the job. They're that type of men to act like those men grow on trees. That's a finite resource. You don't get more because you want more. It's nice that you want more. But if there's a governor on the, the accelerator and you're only going to go 100 miles an hour, stepping on it, you know, harder, going to get you 101. It's not going to get you 120. It's not going to get you 500 miles an hour. You have 100 miles an hour to work with. So, um, you know, treat that resource where it is. It's a mm -hmm. precious what would you say are uh, maybe one or two of your most memorable deployments or interesting uh, engagements you're in that you'd be willing to share? Oh, well, I, I'll try to pick some that are just like diamond, like really way out. So one of my earlier ones, well, I was in the, one of the first groups of dude that would send uh, to the Middle East days after Saddam Hussein went into uh, Kuwait. Um so that was both exciting. I mean, it's 1980, 89. You know, we were excited as hell. Like we were going to, we're going to the war. The war. Uh, nothing like that had happened since Vietnam. And they rushed us out there. We were some of the first guys to get there. And then we, uh, and um, it was part of the big buildup of forces uh, to buy time to get all of the tanks and all of the heavy machinery that was going to be needed to blow up into Iraq in the theater. So, so we didn't get to do anything. We got out there and, and uh, sat on our thumbs and then we got pulled back early and, um, and we were really disappointed. By that. Um, then a, a year later, we found ourselves in uh, doing one of the last Cold War deployments uh, based out of Scotland, working with a lot of really competent 
uh, European Special Operations Forces like the SBS and uh, Commando Bear with the French and um, the Norwegian Marine Jaegers. And um, I think we all still wish that we were in the desert getting it on, you know, against the Iraqis. But looking back at it, developmentally, it was a really good deployment because we were we were working with people that were uh, that we could learn from. Like you, you can't go, you know, be a horrible operator or a slack operator around the SBS. Those guys have game, you know, and the Norwegians working up in the, you know, near the Arctic Circle with the Green Jaeger too. There's probably not a rock in, in Norway that, that that organization hasn't turned over at one point or another. They're so fastidious in the field. There's such good field men in that environment. So it really taught you, really taught you um, the value of, having partners like that and that fact that we're good, but we're not good at everything. Mm. You can't take a SEAL team and throw it in Norway. You're never going to beat, uh, you know, the, the Marine Jaegers or, game, or the German cop swimmers, for example. Those guys are incredible divers and watermen. We did a month-long combat swimmer course with those guys right at the end of the Cold War and just awesome experience for uh, growth and learning. Then you fast forward to, you know, post- 9-11 and um i found myself doing operations off of africa the end that i was at and then uh, they needed some people with my experience uh up in iraq to augment one of the other teams so i brought a few of my other guys that had some uh post you know regular team experience we went up there and uh, found ourselves in a really boring job in a really hostile place in baghdad we were getting uh mortared and rocketed pretty much every day um you know, it didn't feel incredibly dangerous. Well, yeah, it did feel dangerous, but it's like nobody was getting shot on the regular. And everybody was begging to get outside the wire because we were protecting the top six guys in the country that everybody in the world seemed to want dead. And uh, when you're a Secret Service guy, it's a lot of logistics. Basically what we were is a mm. military version of the Secret Service, but he's the top six dudes. And so nobody wants to do a logistics job like, hey, we need X amount of Humvees and these too many, you know, these on a Mercedes for this gig tomorrow. We need helicopters to fly them there. We need food and we need water. You're like, dang, boring, man. I want to go out and make smoking hot brass, you know, killing bad guys. It's again, another one of those, be careful what you ask for. You just want to get it. I did my uh, logistics job uh, like a trooper, just sucked it up and did it because it was necessary. And uh, and yeah, then was noticed. And then commanding officer came up to me and uh, my senior chief was like, hey, we we could use a couple of snipers on this thing that's going to happen tomorrow. Um, we'd really like you guys to go. You up for it? And we were like, yeah. And uh, oh my God, did it? Did we get a dose of careful what you ask for? You just might get it. So we ended up taking on pretty much that whole section of the, that whole area in the green zone. Ended up attacking us. Um, we had four vehicles, four or five vehicles burning next to our building, full of RPGs. There were like 15 dudes all dressed in black, many bullshit guys that uh, that we took on. Most of them, those guys all got killed. But then that whole rest of the city was attacking us, trying to overrun us and driving VB, VBID into the building. And the building was full of smoke. And somewhere in there, uh, we were on the rooftop and a, a guy crept up next to our building from an adjacent building and threw a grenade on top of us. And, Bought it out of the corner of my eye just before it landed on me and screamed grenade. And we all 
fled trying to get away from it. My only avenue of escape was to, to dump uh, about 10 feet the roof of the main building that we're on and and uh, tried to stick that landing uh, like you do with a static line chute and five pounds of armor and, and uh, guns and ammo. Uh, basically 90% severed my, my leg at the knee. And uh, you know, a funny thing, when you get wounded really bad like that, uh, there's no timeout. It's not dodgeball where you can call a time. It's just mm-hmm. so two and a half hours of holding off the enemy trying to overrun us. And, um, you know, we made it out of there uh, when the QRF finally came in and helped us get out. And I found myself into a, uh, in a, uh, in a cash combat surgical hospital being triaged, had my clothes cut off of me and uh, people horribly wounded. I was wounded pretty bad, but mine was a closed injury and it didn't look that bad. There were people around me that were really, uh, people lost their eyes, lost their face, um, the Green Beret captain, Orlovsky, who died uh, on the other side of the curtain for me. And uh, so, yeah, it, um, it, uh, the learning curve is so steep in an engagement like that. You, it's, you know, everybody, everybody, when I tell the story, they try to focus on the horror of like those things. Um, and I'm like, yeah, but the learning curve is like, up. So at the plateau of that, you know, on the plane flying home and during my surgeries and recovery and stuff, I started to realize when people were asking me, like, hey, tell us what like, what combat was like. And, you know, I start slicing the atom and telling them, well, there was this and there was this. And I realized, holy shit, I just got a PhD in urban combat and was lucky to survive it because there, there was all these things I didn't know. I thought I knew I taught urban warfare, but until you're in it, fighting for your life, almost having your clothes shot off you, there was that much lead coming in that you you get this like, aha. So if I have to do it again, I, I know a lot more. And um, yeah. Wow. I mean, thank you for sharing those stories. That's nuts. <laughs> I mean, what you, I mean, it's, it's crazy to imagine going through something like that. And it sounds like, you know, in that environment, guys are going through it on a daily basis. It's yeah, I'll I'll try to put it in perspective. So I've got this wristband on that's a it's a MIA race uh, uh wristband that I got years and years ago when I first got the teams. And I've worn it forever since uh, since 1988, and I had this on my wrist um, in that gunfight. And one day I was taking a shower or something uh, a year or so after that, and I had it off sitting, you know, like on the on the sink. And when I, I glanced over at it, the thought that occurred to me, I looked at this little piece of metal uh, sitting disassociated from me and realizing where it had been. I looked at the metal and was like, I can't believe that thing didn't get shot. Hmm. And I didn't correlate like, well, it was on you, dummy. I mean, that's how that's how many bullets came in in that one engagement and how close they came that I'm marveling that this piece of metal didn't get shot. Yeah, the big thing would have been like horrible that I did. Wow. That's and, and so how did you like how did you feel? Obviously, you were injured and you had to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you feel after being through something like that? I mean, we when we go back to the beginning of the discussion, you're talking about, you know, when we got through but that budge training and you realize what you're capable of and it's showing you what you're capable of. And then you go to an environment like that years later, and it's a whole other level, like 
how does that how how did that make you feel i guess after the dust had settled and you were you know on the road to recovery and and you've got some time to kind of process what happened um a, a, another good question and one that i've uh, been asked a lot and to correlate it back to buds so i've told the story in more, much more detail for different groups um you know if it seals i tell every little bit about it because i hope to clean as much from it and other veterans groups or whatever have asked and i'll dumb it down a little bit because not everybody can understand every nuance the uh when i go into detail about uh like some of the graphic stuff that happened most people other than eh, some seals have but most people when i tell the story will come up and go you know, I can't believe you don't have all this uh, ETS from that, or I can't, I mean, or they, or they assume that like I was mentally damaged from that. And, uh, and what I tell them is I go, no, and it's true. Really, there wasn't that much that happened that was super surprising. You got to remember that, with that on that day, I'd been in a team for 15 years. Mm -hmm. I was a thief, had multiple deployments. I'd been trained to handle major injuries. I'd never had one on myself before that I had to treat, but I knew what I was looking at when I saw it. I knew what was going on. Uh, my leg dangling by the skin. Um, and and the guy next to me just shattered. Um, and I thought, no, none of that shocked me. Um, the things that shocked me were things that you can't experience in training. Like, I didn't know a bullet when it comes that close to you, like when it really, really almost hit you. I didn't know you could feel a sonic wave of that, like in your long bones or in your skull. Um, so that was surprising. Um, the sheer uh, explosive power of a VBID going off, what that feels like. I'd never close enough to one of the. So there were moments where I was like, oh, so that's what that's like. But the in-betweens were kind of level like that. And, you know, when they ask about, oh, you know, shooting, you know, shooting you know, bad guys and all that, I'm like, it doesn't feel like anything. It feels like you ever shot a head blade on the range against another guy and you're in a hurry because you're trying to beat him, then you know what it feels like. The mm -hmm. um, you don't have time to think about the fact that you hurt somebody or took their life. It just, um, so none of that stuff was very surprising. It was just the, uh, you know, <laughs> the things you couldn't possibly experience. Mm -hmm. um, but you get through it, you know, because again, I wasn't a brand new guy. I wasn't an untrained guy. I feel for the army people that were around us because they were new. They were probably been in a couple of years and I'm sure they were horrified because they were nowhere near as well trained or experienced as, as we were. And um, so the after effects of that, I think I probably would more last you know, a deeper. In what you know you, you talked about a little earlier about like working with the SBS and the Jaeger Corps and things like that like can you talk a little bit about the re the relationship between navy seals and i guess specifically um special forces in general and the relationship between like the PMCs in in whether it was Afghanistan Iraq i know like there was a lot of reliance on private mm -hmm. military uh, groups to come in and do something like that yep. you know Blackwater being obviously a big one that was prevalent during Afghanistan and Iraq. Like, what was that like for you guys? Did you ever work with them? And then what's like the cultural, um, like the guys that leave the team to go do a job like that, and maybe they make a lot more money or they get to have that different kind of, you know, they're on the civilian side of it, as it mm -hmm. were. Like, what's sort of the cultural opinion of the private military contractors from like a tier one operator view? Hmm. Well, I'll use the, uh, Somebody one time uh, described uh, uh, like doing political analysis, and they said that uh, 
when you analyze politics or or where somebody uh, candidate is, there's never a static point, right? It's mm -hmm. always a it's either an es escalator that's trending up or it's trending down, mm -hmm. and I think that's a valid way to describe this. So I'll I'll save the contracting side for the end. Um, so working what you were asking about working with the SBS or or people like that prior to. Um, so working with those guys, um, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to show them your very best. Um, after the war started, uh, we, we worked with, uh, I worked with the New Zealand SAS. I worked with the Australian SAS and I worked with JTF two hmm. and, um, in combat. And, uh, we found them to be pretty good guys. There were some cultural differences, not, uh, not at the, uh, enlisted level, really, you know, the worker bee guys, but, uh, a little bit more on the leadership. Um, I think reflective of Canada's values, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe let's take a bigger risk to capture someone instead of just taking them out kind of thing. Whereas we were there at a period of time when our blood was up because we had just mm -hmm. lost a bunch of guys on Red Wings. And so we were there looking to, uh, to make it count against the enemy. And they were just kind of like, hey, they were good special operators. Don't get me wrong, but, um, you know, there were times when we looked at a situation, they looked at a situation, and afterwards we looked, we did – we did what we did and we all got along, you know, amongst us, we were probably like, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I would have handled that differently. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that we saw, I think we saw maybe before we had been engaged in some stuff before them. Um, and we saw some things that made us pretty jaded. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're new into an environment, there's that when you see something horrifying that you get that your mind couldn't imagine prior to, the first time you see it, your reaction isn't that perfect. Right. So now that you know that that's possible, that that's in play and everyone's like, yeah, you know, they do this. Um, in the future, you're more prepared. Well, if that happens again, you know, we're going to. So on the uh, PMT side, that all developed. And I knew all those guys that started Blackwater. It got really big real fast once they started getting into the uh you know private military corporation stuff and deploying people forward i first came across them in iraq in 04 um mixed feelings you know i realized they were there doing a job uh they were they were really trying to do a professional job um as far as the guys that were that left the team to go do it mixed feelings about that too some of it made sense you know these you know, some guy that had retired He's already retired or a guy that was real close to retiring. It made sense. Of course, you know, he's still fit enough and this is a perfect opportunity for him. Um, there were other guys that were like, okay, so, you know, you're re really mid-level or lower, you know, you got like one, maybe two deployments and, and now you're doing this. I don't, I don't think anyone was jealous, but I think somebody's, I think what we tended to see was at maturity reflected in the forward area. And you're like, okay, you know, so whether it was drinking or just crazy incidents or whatever, we weren't doing that because, you know, we had this command structure that even our lowest ranking guy wasn't going to do something ridiculous, um, like some of the things that we saw. So, I, you know, I think it was a mixed bag. Uh, and I'll tell you, it wasn't uh, Blackwater, it was another PMT. They had some really legendary retired SEALs working for them. And those guys were in a uh, position where they changed the outer fence line of the buyout, the Baghdad International Airport. 
and the camp encampment that they were in basically was left outside of that. And um, we were like, oh my God, you know, bad guys are going to come and lay siege to that, like the Alamo. And uh, I remember those guys coming and begging for some things that they needed. And I mean, obviously the, the command took care of them. Um, but I mean, I personally felt kind of like, God dang, you know, it puts you in that bad position. It's like, damn, man, you put me in a jam because uh, you're putting yourself where I don't want to see you of all people you're one of our heroes. I don't want to see you drug through the streets by these idiots. But, you know, now we have to uh, figure out a way to uh, to make it so you can have a fighting chance. And um, that wasn't what we were there for. Mm-hmm. You know, so did we cooperate? Yeah, we did. But I don't think it was purely because they were just Americans. Um, I think in that instance, we didn't want to see we knew and uh, cared about the horrible so some of that, uh, I guess, like respect, understanding the the mutual, I guess, um, regard for each other based on their 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 past experience and their history that carried through even on the private military side. Then, oh, it did. Yeah, it did it in a few instances. And I mean, if it, you know, there were times when, uh, if a, I wasn't there when any of the uh, black uh, Blackwater helicopters were shot down, but had one been shot down when we were there. Uh, and we were told that the QRF important American. I mean, you think about the, the Americans that get themselves in trouble overseas doing whatever they do. And, uh, you know, we don't encourage that. I, I think that, you know, some, some people have a pretty naive view of the world, but we live to fight each other to be on the list of guys to go rescue somebody. Else. Mm-hmm. For sure. So how... So, so how did or how did you end up getting out of the teams? What was when did you decide that you were going to retire? Um, well, in my case, so I was wounded in uh, 06. I went uh, went back to the to the war in 07, less than a year later. Um, that was right after Red Wings, and we dealt with it all of the aftermath of that. And then um, I was like, at that point, I was riding that that wave of like, I got to do the next deployment, the next deployment. I, I was like, I'm going to be in this war until it's over. Let's just go win it. So I was volunteering for everything that was going down range. And, um, I was in zone to reenlist. I just made senior chief. And so, uh, somebody suggested, they're like, Hey, you know, there's this thing that, uh, it's going to get put up overseas and they can use your experience helping them out for a couple of weeks. And while you're there, you could reenlist tax free for a hundred thousand bucks. And I thought, shoot, bonus yeah i was planning to stay in for 30 anyway let's let's do it so i got on the plane and and got out there and then while i was there while i was flying across the atlantic and getting into the middle east uh somebody asked for me by name to go into theater into uh iraq and help them out uh in the sniper capacity so i found myself there and when i got back all the way back to the states from that trip um I just, I started being treated uh, poorly, I thought, by the senior people in the command. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't think I was a superhero or a prima donna or anything even like that. I just did think that having had my leg, not, you know, 90% amputated in 04 and going back to the battlefield less than a year later in 05 was a positive move, it set a good example for the community that like, yeah, you get thrown from the horse, you get back on. And I think I thought in my mind that I didn't think all the bullshit of the world was going to disappear in the teams because there are politics anywhere you go. 
but I did think that uh, petty politics would probably never pertain to me. I would have to do something pretty serious to be messed with. And I found out that wasn't true. Um, and that it be, started becoming, and when I wouldn't, when I wouldn't bend the knee for stupid, uh, more stupid things, I just decided, uh, I, I, uh, it, it broke my heart, but in a way it was probably one of the best things that would have happened because I'd look back at it and my wife and I talk about it and I go, if they hadn't broken my heart then in 07 and I decided I'm not in love with the teams anymore, it's time to move on and I put my retirement papers in, um, I would have been that sad guy that was really old and really broken, coming to work all, you know, the wagging tail puppy, excited to go to work with all my green bags and all my boxes from my office on the sidewalk. And some young guys saying, hey, old man, uh, you can't come around here no more. And that would have been crushing to go that far. So I, th I think everybody has to pick their own time when it's time to go. And in my time, in my, I knew, um, wasn't an overnight decision, but it was pretty quick. Once, once I realized I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. Um, doesn't matter what I do around here. There's always going to be this element, that element. Um, I can't avoid them right now without bending the knee and nobody wanted to help me at that time. I returned a blind eye. So I said, all right, it's time to go. So what was next for you after leaving the teams? Uh, very oddly, uh, so one of the last things that I did was um, was was write a report on uh, some enemy activity, and I hit send on that report to the people I owed it to, and that thing went further than I ever imagined. And so, an organization uh, called me up uh, within 24 hours of me hitting send on it. They they I don't know how they found my number, but they did. And they called my personal cell and they said, hey, um, are you thinking about retiring? And I was going through this drama with the uh, with the leadership at the command I was at. And I said, funny, you should ask. Yeah, yeah, I am kind of considering it. And they said, well, take some take some time. We want to, we want you to come up and visit us and we have a we have a job for you. So I ended up um, I ended up leaving and going when I retired, I went right into working in the uh, Department of Defense Research and um, helping fast track the. Uh, late breaking or very, very immature technologies to become things that uh, were good on the battlefield and did that for, for a long time, for like 14 years. Well, that's, that's wonderful. So is that, was that more of like a uh, office type setting or is that a, still like a very operational type job? I got, I got to go downrange again with that job. Uh, and, it, and that was fun. Um, I think, that was a better pipeline than what I would have been set up to do, whether I stayed in the teams or whether I, like a lot of my friends have, have uh, retired and they go into the intelligence community in some aspect. And um, I got to, you know, I got to have interactions there, but the, the fun part was that I think it developed me as a person better because when you're in the teams, you're around the same personality type, more or less. They're all people that were selected just like you. So mm -hmm. everybody's kind of a carbon copy of each other personality-wise. But working in uh, Department of Defense uh, Research, you have to work with people that are very, very highly educated. I mean, I you know I would be struggling to keep up with them on talking about some aspects of development of a technology. Um, and, and then some of those people have great science 
but they can't see the application. They don't, or they don't understand the realities of the world and its application. And that's that's when it took me a couple of years doing it to realize, oh, I have a PhD on real world experience, and I am I'm value added here instead of being, you know, like emanated as somebody's degree or or whatever. And then the other thing that you work with is you work with vendors. So you work with people that have um, great things that they're trying to sell the military. Some of it needs to be shaped. Some of it needs to be uh, directed. And, and some of it needs to be more. But I like the fact that, uh, and then that, so I could bounce between my old group because I was kind of a liaison back there. So I still got my SEAL team time. But when I got tired of that, it was probably time for me to go talk to a researcher when that became nosebleed section, then it was probably time to go talk to a vendor. So I really liked the diversity. Mm. And the other thing is that in the uh, Department of Defense research, you'll find that um, you'll find that um, there's a lot of people that are um, on the spectrum, and um, and and they're they're value adding, right? So I never had to like I never had a, a seal with Asper, you know, in a platoon. They, they screen that, that this doesn't happen, right? You don't have somebody that has some sort of thing. Um, so you'll have people that have difficulty having normal social interactions, but they know numbers or they know science like crazy. So they're, they're value added to the Department of Defense research. And I liked the fact that, um, that I had to learn to work in that environment with people who were going to respond to a joke or a, or a, uh, just this typical interaction, you know, um, but quite the same way. And, and I think that uh, it's probably made me a better human to, to just be out in the world. I was so isolated with that one personality type of Navy SEALs for 20 years. It was a different kind of challenge and a different kind of environment to adapt to. Yeah, it was. Yeah, very interesting. The What would be like one piece of, of gear, I guess, that you either used in the SEALs or in your DOD research uh position as well too that you would want to carry with you or you would want to um you know if you could only pick one to have or to keep what would it be one piece of gear yeah well i mean a watch is essential. you got to be on time for everything so there, there's anything i did in my adult life that being knowing what the the status of time or timing wasn't a factor mm. um, you know after that then it's then it's a toss up between a, a flashlight and a pocket knife. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, to have, knowing knowing uh, when when to be someplace or being able to time something is critical. What's your, I guess, go to blade company you like to carry? Um, there's a couple, but uh, Ernest Emerson and I are friends, and uh, I uh, there's a joke. Uh, I uh, he made a knife called the Commander, mm-hmm. and then he made one called a uh, super commander mm-hmm. that was only a limited edition and we ended up getting those issued uh i was the one responsible for getting those issued to our team so we had sterile ones issued it was kind of a cool thing so then i was in iraq uh after i retired when i was doing this dod research thing and i was sitting and there's mre boxes that uh that they made that were like postcards so after you're done eating your mre you can put your name on it and whoever you're addressing it to and put it in the mail from over there it's like a postcard. It goes for free. And I was like, I can't pass this up. So I took my super commander and I traced the outside of it, made this monstrous tracing. And I sent it to Ernie on that box postcard. I was like, I dare you. And uh, that became the Uber commander. 
both in their product line and and uh and so yeah ernie's ernie's uh a good sport and he's been a super big supporter of buddy in the military especially yeah that's so, awesome I've, I've carried an everson for years it's some of the best they're so simple and that's what i love about them right i mean there's so many cool knives out there that have all kinds of bells and whistles but there's just something so like pure and purpose built about an emerson i love i love i love those knives a lot they're really really yep. really good um funny you mentioned mres if you could eat i'm going through some of some like lightning round type questions now just that were submitted by the community i guess so like if you could eat one mre for the rest of your life which one would it be Ooh, the spicy meatballs one. okay all right very very interesting um What's another good one that we have here? What's one misconception about the Navy SEALs or special operations in general that you think the general public has? Yeah, there's so many. What uh, to choose? And I, I think that uh, there's a notion that uh, guys get to use, you know, whatever they want, and that's, you know. There's some flexibility built in there, um, mm -hmm. but it's not anywhere near as loose as people think it is. Well, these guys, you know, are using blah, blah, blah. And it, no, probably not. Mm -hmm. um, what else do we have here? Yeah, I thought of, you asked me about the uh, our interaction with the Army Special Force. Yes. That's what I was mentioning. I wanted to mention so that changed uh, my experience from the time that I came in. So mutual respect um i think a lot of people on the outside think there's a lot more competition or animosity or or whatever uh between rangers and seals or seals and, and green berets i think we're different 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 missions um i'm not going to say that uh, that i can perform foreign internal defense on par with or better than a uh, army you know a career army special forces person that would be a ridiculous statement um I, what was cool though, is that those edges got blurred, or at least we got to see over each other's fence lines starting in the mid to late 1990s prior to 9-11, which was fantastic. So things became, you know, where we were blue and, you know, army was green. Things started to merge and become more purple. And um, whoever had the wisdom to make that happen in a forced fun context of exercises, that was a smart move because I was in the field working with rangers, uh, Army Rangers from the regiment. I was in the field working with Green Berets. And then, um, so I really had an understanding of their capability and their differences and vice versa and, and a mutual respect because their language capabilities and, and uh, some of their organizational skills. And they have to think about a much more total picture a lot of times than, than we do as far as uh, our, you know, our national uh, and goals. But what was cool then is in Afghanistan, we went to go do a mission and we were uh, laid up at an Army Special Forces team house up in northern Afghanistan near the border. And um, they put us up and they were like, yeah, no, you're, you're welcome to everything, our, our care packages, what have you. And then I saw them getting ready to gear up. And I was like, what are you guys gearing up for? And they're like, ah, tomorrow we got to go do this Special Forces thing. We got to go drive into a village no one's ever been in before, figure out whether it's good or bad, assess whether, you know, these people are going to support America or what. And I said, nobody's ever, ever been in there. I said, well, why didn't you ask us to come? They're like, well, you're here to do your thing. I'm like, yeah, but I'm eating your cookies that your wife baked and sent and, you know, smoking your cigars. I'm like, could you use a few more guns? And they're like, yeah, 
you guys would come. I'm like, well, I'll be damned if I'm going to sit here tomorrow and hear that you guys got shot off the target or worse, took a casualty. We're not there. Yeah. So we, we gunned up and we went with them and it was great. I've got some cool pictures from it. Great because I had a much deeper understanding of what those guys do on the regular and uh, would have been hard to reverse those roles, right? It would have been hard to take guys and do some mission because you just can't take somebody and snap them in like a Lego on that. But um, I think that that, those sorts of things went a long way towards uh, <clears throat> taking some of those prejudices or, or uh, attitudes that sometimes exist maybe with younger SEALs or younger special forces guys, because I'm friends with those guys to those days, to this day. And, um, and so, yeah, it changed over the years. Um, some of it by happenstance and some by necessity. Hmm. What is the most accurate uh, Hollywood or, or pop culture depiction of Navy SEALs in your experience that you've seen? Uh, they all suck. All the I, modern ones. I imagine it's like watching cop shows and things like that. You know, it's 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 not enjoyable when you once you've done the job. Hmm. Well, the so the problem with the modern ones that are that are based off of uh like a, somebody somebody wrote a book and then a movie got made is that if you were if you knew the person or you were there for any of the events depicted um you you just go Ugh. so there's a couple of you know best-selling movies that came out i've only seen them once mm. uh, i went at the request one of a widow that husband was depicted dying in that in the, in the movie and then another one was um you know person that was a, a popular seal in uh, in cult in, in our culture um who died unfortunately died tragically and we, and uh, i was around for some of the activities that are portrayed there and it's just very tough to see something that you're like because what you see what you end up seeing if you've lived it um you were you were there you were around there is you notice how convenient certain truths were left out matter mm -hmm. and you notice how there's blatant fiction that's added that never happened and those two things never sit well with me um you know i i'd have to go back to uh you know we just watched we just screened one of the old the old frogman movie from uh you know the 50s richard mark movie and that's well it's not navy seals it's the bt in world war ii <clears throat> the uh a lot of the different things that they represent are far more accurate because they're using the technology of the time uh, appropriately. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So difficult to watch a movie that's being characterized as a biography that's far from it. And uh, I don't know. I really, I'm really not impressed with any of the movies. Oh, I'll, I'll, with one, one example, uh, I was not a, uh, so active valor, when they came out with the, uh, they told us, hey, we're going to do this thing. We think it's going to get recruiting up. I thought it was a horrible idea. Mo most of us at my level, you know, really thought that was a dumb idea. Um, I still think it was a dumb idea. I don't think it, I don't think it, I don't, like, like I said, I don't think you need to promote being a SEAL. The people that we want will come looking for. But um, I have to say, those guys, by and large, pretty much all those guys that were the rank and file actor seals in there that were real seals, they didn't ask to do that. And 
um, you know, one of them's in Congress right now. And when, and, and, uh, when uh, Derek Van Orden, who's the senior chief in that, played that, I didn't know him. I saw the movie and I saw that scene between him and the terrorists where they got the knock them balls back and forth and, and he goes shit. I was like, okay, so all the actors, all the SEALs are real SEALs except that guy. That guy's an actor. I mean, went, no, no, I know him. He's, he's actually a senior chief. And I was like, holy crap. I was pretty impressed because I was like, Jesus Christ, that guy's, he is believable as an actor in that scene. He's pretty, pretty intense. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I, I remember seeing that movie in theaters when it came out, even up here in Canada. I remember it being a pretty cool movie. And the concept of it was neat, too, because I think that was part of the advertising was that it was like, oh, they have real operators playing these characters as well, too. Yeah. I, again, I don't think it was a good I don't think it was a very useful uh, recruiting. Um, but and how it was kind of sold to us that were <laughs> against that as a recruiting tool was like, but it's also going to honor these real acts, right? Acts of valor that all of us were very familiar with. So the guy throwing himself on the grenade is representative of who really did that, Mike Monsoor. Uh, the guy that gets all shot to, to pieces at the end, chief, and survives is re representative of my friend, Mike Day, who just took his own life in March. Um, so all of those individual things, the, the guy getting hit with the uh, RPG and surviving, those things actually happened to, to real team guys. 9-11 so i don't know jury's out you know i've read i read everything that was written about seals that was you know published in the early 80s and that wasn't much and that little bit uh stirred my interest i time will tell whether uh whether it was affected or not mm -hmm. yeah i suppose that's, suppose that's true and yeah i can see what your point you mean with the like the biography side of things i mean i i would think maybe then like some of the more fictitious stuff that's been made like you know terminalist or something like that might be a little bit more enjoyable because then at least it's not necessarily based on anything specific but i mean i don't know the, the jury's out that's up to you if you find that stuff more enjoyable i suppose kind of based on your own perspectives well actually so this will be controversial to guys that are still active because most active guys hate theories seal team. Um, I have a little bit different attitude about it though, mm. um, because and, and I think there's two reasons why they dislike it. One, I think that they have some problems with people that are were involved with setting it up their former kills, and those are just you know um, rivalries or or. Uh, um, opinions of the of those people and what they're doing and, and they're negative and they're probably always going to stay negative in their mind. The other is that the the uh, concept of like, hey, you're giving away trade secrets because most of what we do isn't is easily defeated if you know how we're, how it is that we're doing it. And uh, and the show looks really realistic. Um, I don't think they're deliberately trying to give away anything, but yeah, you know. Guys that are currently serving are like, why give anything? Hmm. And and it's and it's completely understandable. On the upside of it, <clears throat> I think that um, the way this series delves into some of the interpersonal relationships on and off duty, um, some of the things how the families are affected, and particularly the fact that they've kept the recurrent theme of uh, traumatic brain injury alive. Uh, I I actually think that there are probably uh, recently former SEALs and SEAL families and maybe currently serving SEALs and SEAL families that secretly see 
<laughs> that show episodes of it and identify characteristics of uh, someone that has TBI in somebody that they love that they're living with. And if that increases the awareness of like, hey, maybe this person ought to uh, getting some help or getting out or or getting diagnosed or something or, re- or just simply realizing that, hey, it is a thing. Um, I don't see that as a bad thing. But you're still going to have guys that say, yeah, screw that, though. We could tough that out and yeah, we shouldn't give anything away. Mm-hmm. The show, that show doesn't uh, nauseate me. Uh, like I think that does a lot of my active duty friends. Hey, well, that's at least you can see the value in it, right? I mean, for most people, it's just entertainment, but for you, you can kind of see some value in it beyond that, just for you know your own experiences, right? The show has been open to hiding um, some interesting nuances in there. Mm-hmm. One example is they named one of the camps that the during one season the guys were working out of this camp uh, downrange, and they named it Camp uh, Camp Larkin. And that was a nod to uh, Ryan Larkin, who took his own life. Ryan was the son of a SEAL, Frank Larkin, who was the uh, the uh, sergeant at arms of the U.S. Senate when his son uh, was suffering from and took his own life. And so I like that the series um, gave a nod to the family and and to Ryan and Ryan's sacrifice and losing his battle with uh, yes and TBI. And then uh, most recently in the season finale of uh, last season, um, one of my friends who's a prop master on the show got put in front of the camera and he actually wore my actual, this watch, the real seal Tudor Submariner is on his wrist in the show. That's wild. That's really, really, really cool. Getting into the watches now. I mean, um, we are, we are a watch podcast and you've shared so much crazy, crazy, incredible knowledge with us, uh, you know, about your experiences in, in the Navy SEALs. And I mean, I am eternally, eternally grateful for that, but we, we, we're both watch nerds and we want to talk watches a little bit. So during your time in, you know, what kind of watches did you wear? What, what, what are some of your duty worn watches? And I guess, uh, you know, how did they play a role in your, in your time in and then, how did your time in inform uh, later purchases of watches for you? Um, you know, I think I'd always been so, so since I made that decision that I wanted to be a SEAL, I was always a sucker for watches. And then uh, those two summers coming down to Virginia Beach and interacting with SEALs, I was really keen to see what was on everybody's wrist. By and large, it was uh, and uh, mm-hmm. so of course I had to have one and um figured out how to get one and got one. And uh, later I got a second one. So I would rotate between those two, not for any particular reason. I think I just would keep one on one band and one on another. Um, I bought a Citizen Aqualand before, just before I came in. Man, there used to be this incredible, from the outer Chicago area. And there used to be this incredible watch store in Water Tower Place, Chicago, on the mezzanine level. And I remember going in there and there were two watches that caught my eye. And this would have been in like 1986. There was a the Citizen Aqualand, which I think had just come out. Mm. And the other was, and I still wish I had one of these. I see them from time to time on eBay, and I'm hesitant to buy them because they're, they're old now. But um, it was this Bretling compass watch, and it was black, and you would unscrew a part of it, and it would flip over, and then there was a compass underneath. And uh, the marketing of it was like some frogmen in the water with Hueys, you know, it was like cartoonish. 
And I, it just, uh, and it's all black. It was one of the first real black kind of tactical looking watches. And uh, I wish I picked one up back then. But uh, so I think I was starting my watch nerdery uh, early, then lucked into the uh, the Tudor Submariner while I was at Bud's. And um, you got that early then. You got that pretty early on before people really knew a lot about them. Yeah. I mean, SEALs knew about them, but mm -hmm. the world didn't know. They weren't a thing. Um, yeah. And and literally, I'll, I'll smash everybody's hearts. I got that watch for 150 bucks. Oh, that's crazy. I think it's worth about 20000 right now. Jeez. So how, yeah. what, how'd you come across it? One of my, one of my uh, classmates was from San Diego. And so <clears throat> when we weren't training on the weekends, I spent time with him. And he introduced me to his uncle, who was a surplus dealer and military surplus guy. And he would go to these uh, DRMO auctions mm. and buy cool things. And I don't know how he found out, but he got some inside scoop that this box was going to have a hundred Tudor Submariners in it. He took a, scraped all his pennies together, went down and bid on this thing and won the box. And then, uh, so he had a hundred of these things and he went down to a Rolex, um, like repair, you know, dealer that had a authorized repair guy. He said, Hey man, how much to make all of these run? And he goes, Oh, but you know, some crazy amount of money. Cause not all of them were working. And he goes, no, 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 in watches. How many watches to make all the rest of them work? He, this many, whatever that was. And he goes, done. So he made a deal. He said, uh, hey, anybody in his nephew's graduating class, he would sell one to for 150 Wow, that's incredible. That's so yeah. cool. What an amazing yeah. piece of history to have, seal history, uh, you know, watch history as well, too. That's outstanding. <laughs> I was wearing it when I received my diploma, when I rang the bell, the only time you ring the bell right at the end. That's Did you wear it at all uh, operationally or was that always just one that you kind of kept in a special no. place? Yeah, I would wear it for special events. So usually if that was a uh, war to a lot of funerals, um, things like that, Spe special things where we had to dress up and wear our blues. Uh, if we were retiring somebody or we were burying somebody. I, I always... What else do you have in the collection or what else did you wear uh, operationally? Um, well, that's one I'll get you. So I was brand new, hadn't even deployed yet. And apparently my watch uh, fanaticism became well known. And so somebody was like, hey, go back to supply. They have a watch. They want you to test and evaluate. So they gave me a Chronosport UDT. Okay. I've seen those. Yeah. I've seen pictures of those. They're pretty cool. Yeah, and it was a really cool watch. It was, it was had a digital window in it, but otherwise, you know, it had hands. And uh, sadly, that thing got destroyed. I was on a water parachute free fall, so the opening was hard, and and your altimeter is worn on the same wrist as your watch. And um, when I pulled, I guess it those two things collided, and one of the little uh, press the button caps popped off so the second i hit the water it flooded out and mm. destroyed and i begged them and i was like hey can i keep it nope it's like can i get another one nope it's the only one so that was the sad short short-lived story of the chronosport udt mm. um what else did i have there was um issue watches were pretty much you know i don't even think i got a uh turtle issued i just used my own and then we started getting into the digital thing so had a several of the g-shocks and uh that one that i just showed you actually was looked completely destroyed 
when I found it in a kit bag about a month ago and I rebuilt it and changed the battery and it works brand new. So, so um, I would, I was that close to pitching it and I thought, I don't know, maybe I can fix it. Hmm. That's awesome. And so what else do you have just in your personal collection now that as you've developed as a, as a collector, you know, you, you pick these pieces up and things like that. I'm always kind of keeping my eyes out for stuff. Um, I was always a big uh, admirer of Mackie Sog operations mm. too. And so once I sort of realized the whole story about the, the Mackie Sog, you know, Seiko, got my eyes out for one and, and found a really clean one. And so this is one of my wow. better ones in the collection. Um, ended up wearing that when we, we redid some scenes for the upcoming movie, uh, 27 minutes in Sante. And, uh, I don't think you see the watch in the movie. It doesn't matter. I was just like, I'm prepared for off. Hmm. Ah, that's really, really cool. Any other pieces you want to share or talk about at all? Well, I'll show you, I'll, I'll uh, show you this one and it'll correlate with the live event that you have coming up. So back in um, 2019, there's a, um, one of my friends that was killed on Red Wings um, named Jeff Lucas. Okay. He was on the helicopter that was shot down during the whole Red Wings. <clears throat> Great dude. His son was three years old when it, when his uh, dad was killed. And um, my wife and I have been connected with uh, his widow and his son ever since. So <clears throat> when his son turned 18 back in 2019, the uh, I get this call from his mom. And she's like, hey, I need you to do us a favor. And, you know, I was like, yeah, anything. What, what is it? She goes, well. The Word of Honor Foundation set up this um, trip. When Seth becomes 18, he could choose anywhere in the world to go for two weeks. And the concept of this is like, it's a little bit fantasy, but it's kind of cool. Like it, like as though your dad would take you when you're 18 on some rite of passage trip anywhere you wanted to go, right? In a mm -hmm. perfect world, we all have dads. That's the idea is they fund something like that. But how they do it is uh, it, the son got to pick where he was going to go but he was going to go with one of his dad's teammates that knew his dad. So it was another seal that Roger up to do it. And right before, like, I don't know, less than a week before they were getting ready to launch, he, uh, he comes down deathly ill and he was still in the Navy. He was just getting ready to retire. And he went in to get checked out and they're like, dude, you are so messed up. You cannot leave the country. Like you would die if you got on a commercial airplane and went to do the thing you want to do. So the trip was to go to the Galapagos Islands and dive for a week Wow! and go from there to Peru and uh, hike into Machu Picchu for in state, you know, so the course of a week do that and then out in Machu Picchu. So uh, <clears throat> I get, I get the call. Hey, I need you to go. I'm like, what? Yeah. You're the only other guy that, uh, that could do it. I'm like, I can't just drop everything and go for two weeks. And my wife goes, yeah, you could. So I think it through and I was like, I go, hey, I don't even think I have my civilian dive card. I mean, I had it years ago, but I haven't seen it in forever. I said, oh, don't worry. We already thought about that. This uh, dive company in town is just going to give you your card. Hmm. Well, that's not what happened. So I go down to the dive place thinking, because I had had hundreds of hours diving. And those people knew that. And I went down there and they go, hey, all you got to do is do a little pool thing in our pool and you're good to go. I'm like, all right. 
So they put me in there in the pool. And you got to realize that <clears throat> Jeff was a practical joker in the extreme. Hmm. And since his passing, every now and then, he plays little practical jokes on me. And this is one of his better ones. <clears throat> so I get in the pool with this guy who's the dive instructor, and he introduces himself. And he says, yeah, he goes, he was an Army veteran. I said, oh, did you dive in the Army? He goes, no, I just got into recreational diving. And he's one of these guys that just got so into it, he locked out all of his dive balls, and he's a dive instructor. I'm like, oh, okay, good for you. And he goes, okay, hey, let me just, uh, we'll just start over here. Come over by the edge of the pool where I can keep an eye on you. I'm thinking, did anybody tell you about my background? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, go over here by the edge of the pool. Now watch, watch me without my straps, put my face mask on. So he puts it on. Then he goes underwater and he comes up like you can do like I'm like I'm a six year old. He goes, all right, see how I did that? Now you do that. And this is how my day went. So from that, all the way through everything there is step by step by the dive manual, all the way to doing buddy rescues in the deep end. <clears throat> and I am fuming by the time it's done. I'm like, okay, I just spent six hours with this strange guy learning to do stuff that I could do in my sleep. And I'm like, okay, are we done? He goes, yeah, man, everything's cool. Full checkout. Now we just got to do the open water. I'm like, open water? He goes, yeah. He goes, you got to do the open water part. And I go, well, <clears throat> where do we do that? Because we can do it right here in Virginia Beach. It's just that uh, you got to do two dives, open water. This is March. So the water temp is in the low 40s. I'm like, you've got to be shitting me. Nope. So. I go, all right, so we're going to do this in Virginia Beach. Where are we going to do it? He tells me. I go, let's just knock this out. I'm running out of time. I need the card so I can get on the plane and go. Okay. Then he changes his mind, and we're go we had to go to the place you're going to. Okay. And so in the interim, uh, I bought this Garmin watch, yeah, Descent. Nice. <laughs> but I thought, well, that way I, I can be lazy, and it'll just log all my dive stuff, and I can – it in the book from there it'll all be digital and then i can save it that way but we i literally followed this guy out to where you're going which is about it about a two-hour drive from here <clears throat> went out there and we get in the water he's got this dry suit on and uh and i got a wetsuit on because i'm like 42 nah wetsuit's fine and uh so we got to do two dives you know with the 10 minute surface interval so we do the first dive and sitting there cooking off 10 minutes in the shallows and he starts freezing jackhammering in his uh, dry suit. And he's like, you want to get out of the water? I'm like, nope. And he goes, you sure you're not cold? I'm like, and I'm thinking cold is just so relative to me. Like, no, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he's like, do you mind if I get out? Nope. Be right here. So he goes and gets out and comes back after 10 minutes, gets in. We go do the second dive. And anyways, when we're done, come back and he's like hey uh you want to go back up here and change where it's warm it's like no you're down here by the car see you when you're done so he comes back down and then he, it's funny because then the kind of like his wheels start turning he goes was that the coldest water you've ever been in your life ago 42 he goes you've been in water colder than that i was like yeah and uh he says that's the coldest water i've ever been like, oh, okay good for you log entry and he goes well what's the coldest you've ever been in? i was like oh i don't know in the 30s i said i think 38 and then I showed him a picture of myself in a German diesel uh, torpedo tube, submarine torpedo. And I said, see this picture? And he's like, oh, my God. I was like, yeah, I was the first of four guys in there. And then they flooded it, and the water temp was 38. 
came in. He's like, well, what were you wearing? I said, a three, two, one or a cheater. And he, he just couldn't, couldn't get his mind around it. And I was like, look, I've got all this time diving. I said, it was never really fun. Challenging. Yes. Fun. No. I said, because it was always dark, even in the daytime when you're under a ship, it's, it's dark. I said, the Navy can take the fun out of diving. Trust me. And I said, but he goes, well, what's the longest you ever go? And I was like, God, oh, my two longest dives are 13 and a half hours and 15 hours. And it just, blew his mind he couldn't get get his mind around it but i remember driving home from that quarry now i could go get my bags packed i remember thinking i had to watch and i remember thinking jeff lucas got me again he he made me spend almost a week with this cat going through most for a seal with as many dives i had it's sort of a humiliating you know thing I guess it's good to get humbled like that every now and then, but it was pretty funny. Wow, that, that is that is hilarious. That's that's an it had to have been a very interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's tough. That's like you could be teaching that course, and he's you know running you through the paces like that. But I guess that's you know the way it goes. That's bureaucracy for you, I suppose. No, I kind of feel like I might have been one of the first people that he uh, was handed you know handed like go. I'd be the student, and then then maybe they did that because they were like, "Hey, dude, this guy's a team guy. We know him. He's done a million things. Just you know, make sure he won't drown in the pool and, and check him off." And he thought it was the other way around, like they were testing him. I don't know; it could have been something like that. But mm-hmm. it, it it was a comedy of errors. And the funny thing is, I don't really dive that much anymore, but I wear the watch a lot for tracking some of my fitness stuff. And uh, and there's never a time I put that watch on that I don't think about Jeff having his way with me. No, that was kind of funny. Oh, that's a hilarious story. That's really, really cool. That's yeah. awesome. I got one last question left. And mm-hmm. then uh and then we will, I think, wrap it up because I know your time is precious and you've you've given so much of it today already. And I greatly appreciate that. If you could and, go if you could go back in time and you mm-hmm. could talk to a younger version of yourself and give them one piece of advice garnered from all the wisdom you've you've mm-hmm. gathered over your times in the teams just getting older, living life, things like that. What's one piece of advice you'd share with that young, excited teenage self of yours? Oof. Good, good question. I think that, um, you know, I, I pride myself on being somebody that at a young age listened to older people that had experiences and learned from their experiences. But I don't think there's, you know, if I could go back in time, I would tell myself or say, listen to what people are telling you and take their advice. Um, not having a strong father around. I married young because I really, really wanted to. I married a really great person young, but it didn't work out. And, um, and uh, I think I could have saved both of us a lot of, you know, rough time still friends with that person and wish them wish them well but you know when you're when you're young and you think that you know everything and you're when you're young and strong you definitely know everything right mm-hmm. and uh and i think that's the one thing i would say. there are people that are giving you a heads up seals that i had met were like hey this lifestyle is extremely hard on marriages i wouldn't come into it married mm-hmm. and uh, and i didn't listen Fair enough. I mean, that's, that's strong insight and, you know, one that you've gained through experience. And I think that's definitely makes a lot of sense and something to, you know, 
passing it on to other people that are looking to go down that career path as well too it's like you know you need to be in a certain spot in life ideally to do that i think and you you want to be able to focus on you know getting through that and living that lifestyle right and you don't want to have to go through those sorts of challenges on top of the already challenges you described and just going through that whole training process and going through that career right so yeah you know people always the the their seals have put it this way that's you know the the teams are always your mistress you know Mm. it's the most demanding and you will always crap on your family when the teams call Mm -hmm. we need you we need you to go on deployment we need this and you do and uh, then one day the teams don't need you anymore. And what you're left with is how you treated that family. So um, I think it's difficult to be a good husband or, and good father when that happens. That's hard enough. And it is extremely tough to be a SEAL, even in peacetime. So add, add that all up, the experiences that I, that I had adding up to wartime. Um, I don't, uh, you know, I don't look back and go, oh, this is, you know, and, and carry that baggage. I'm, I've got a great wife. She was a perfect wife for me at the time that uh, that we found each other, which has been, a, you know, awesome in retirement. Um, really the perfect person. And there were some bumps get there emotionally that didn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, Dave, you know, it's been incredible chatting with you, uh, your experiences, your, your, your knowledge, the wisdom you've shared, you know, hearing about your watches as well too, obviously, uh, it, it's been so cool doing this with you. Um, really quickly, if people want to, uh, engage in some of your content, cause you do have a wonderful Instagram page as well too, or if they want to chat with you, what are some of the landing spots or methods of communication someone could, uh, you know, go through? Uh, right, right now it's just uh, Dave Hall 1911 on uh, Instagram. That's pretty much it. I've got a Twitter account, but I don't really engage on that. Kind of waiting for Twitter to stop being a cesspool. It's I find that Instagram has been a really has uh, actually been a pretty positive uh, platform for engagement. Um, it's interesting how different social media types bring out the best and worst people. But I've I've found uh, people to be pretty pretty nice and friendly on Instagram in the watch community particularly. It's been cool mm-hmm. yeah the watch side of instagram really is i think some of the best of the community for sure mm-hmm. yeah well I'll, I'll make sure i drop uh, a link to your instagram profile then in the description boxes below for uh youtube and uh on the various podcasting platforms likewise for myself anyone has any questions comments feedback feel free to shoot me an email at rico's watches podcast at gmail.com additionally if you want to follow along with the show sort of it's central hub of communication and information you can head over to instagram and give it a follow at uh, rico's watches podcast all one word if you enjoy this episode in audio medium and others and you would like to enjoy it in a video medium you can head over to the rico's watches podcast youtube channel it's just rico's watches podcast so make sure you like and subscribe hit the bell icon all that youtube stuff helps so other people can find the show and uh, can reach a larger audience over time dave thank you so much for coming on the show it was an absolute pleasure and uh i really look forward to hopefully having you again on the show sometime soon yeah right on anytime keep in touch and uh, let's link up when you're in virginia likewise you take care Bye-bye. all right